There's an expression that applies to diesel locomotives, and it goes something like this. If you can hear the train coming, it's already too late. And that expression is also perfect for my guest today, as he's one of the best open ice hitters still playing hockey at any level. My guest today is Mr. Mike Cornell. Nystrom, Nystrom's really getting some good right hands in. Gillies is down with Sandstrom. Somebody better help Sandstrom. Everyone must be held accountable for their actions. You cannot see your star carried out in a stretcher and do nothing about it. Oh my, did Mick plant one on C-card. Wow. You can't put a bounty on a man's head. I just did. But just a minute, Al Arbor has won four Stanley Cups, so don't start telling Al Arbor what to do, you and John Davison. Welcome back to Coliseum Chronicles, The Penalty Box. I'm your host, Joe Lazito. Welcome to episode 37. 37 episodes of pure, unadulterated goodness brought to your ears by me. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, if this is your first time listening, welcome aboard. I hope you enjoy what you're listening to, and I hope you come back. And if you are a repeat listener... I appreciate the fact that you showed up again. Thank you very much. So today's guest, as I said, is Mike Cornell, Mike's association with the Islanders organization. In case you're not familiar with his story, uh, Mike has played parts of four seasons with the Bridgeport Sound Tigers and parts of three seasons with the Worcester Railers of the East Coast Hockey League. Uh, he also attended one training camp with the Islanders. And uh, if you're not familiar with Mike, definitely uh, check out his stuff on YouTube. There's plenty of fights on there. There's a few hits, which, you know, I knew how tough Mike was. I knew how tough of a fighter he was. I knew that he was uh, really an old school style defenseman, which is what appeals to me and probably appeals to you if you're listening to the show. He plays old school in a new school world. Uh, what I didn't know until I really started researching this is how great of a hitter that he is. I mean, he is... He is a guy out there that if you're a fan of hitting, Mike is your guy. He uh, he's, he's thrown some big hits in his career. So uh, I urge you, you know, after you're done with this interview, definitely go check out some of Mike's stuff on YouTube and Google him. And, uh, you know, Mike's not just, a, not just an enforcer. He's not just a hitter. I mean, he's a very talented player. Uh, he's a leader. So uh, all this stuff you're going to find out as you proceed with the interview. And uh, I know I thank him at the end, but thank you again, Mike, for your time. Uh, just uh, before we go any further, if my voice sounds a little chunky, uh, we were out last night with some friends at a, at a birthday party for one of our friends uh, down in Philadelphia, and it was a great time. I mean, it, it's usually for, for these, uh, these friends that we have, you know, they're very, very 
they're great people. So they always have a lot of friends over and it's always usually the same circle of people. And, and honestly, I don't know most of them, uh, but it's a, it's just a good time. Like it's just, uh, it just brings me back a little bit where you can actually go to a party or something like that and have a nice time and just bullshit with people you haven't seen in a while. But as if you're on the East coast, you know that yesterday we got really nice weather. And then as the day went on and the night went on, it got a little chilly out, but I'm, still wearing shorts and a, a short sleeve shirt and everything. And it's the kind of thing that I didn't feel until after the fact when we, when we drove home, uh, I went on a sneezing fit and everything. So I feel okay. But, uh, you know, I find myself clearing my throat a lot today and sneezing a little bit. So, uh, it's definitely not the COVID. If you're listening to this, I don't, I don't have that. I think it was just, uh, got a little chilly last night. So, uh, and in my old age, I might be a little more delicate than I used to be, but, uh, Anyway, that is why I may sound like, uh, sound a little different than normal, but, uh, but anyway, just want to let you know. So as far as the show goes, please do me a favor. If you could subscribe to the show on whatever platform you're listening to, uh, give it a light, a light, give it a like, please hit that button with the thumbs up or whatever it is on your platform, like the show. And if you have a second, please rate and review the show. Um, it, it helps. I guess it what it helps is if people are searching for hockey podcasts on their uh, platform, uh, I guess the more reviews I get, the more likes, uh, more subscriptions, uh, I think I appear uh, more prominently in the searches and, um, you know, it helps grow the show. And if, if you don't mind, I would definitely appreciate it. If you're on social media and if <laughs> if you deleted your social media after this last week, I certainly don't blame you. But if you are still on social media, I am most active on Twitter, and I have two Twitter accounts. I have my personal Twitter account, at Joe underscore Lozito, and the account for the show is at Kali Sinbin Pod. So uh, why don't you go there? If you're still on Twitter, why don't you go there? Um, follow me. I'll follow you back. It's the decent thing to do. Um, you know, like I said, as far as the show, Twitter, it's mostly it's all Islander enforcer related stuff. And as far as my personal Twitter, I don't get too serious on there about anything. So uh, if you like a distraction from the nonsense that's been going on lately, uh, you know, follow me, I'll follow you back. Uh, Facebook. I know a lot of people that aren't on Facebook anymore, <laughs> but if you're still on Facebook, facebook.com slash Coliseum Chronicles podcast, um, similar content, to uh the twitter page the collie sin bin pod twitter page and uh also uh more of the same content can be found on instagram coliseum underscore chronicles underscore podcast so if you're still on social media if you're on any of those platforms if you're on all those platforms uh give give the accounts a follow a like whatever it is and uh i will return the favor in kind again all that stuff helps grow the show and uh, honestly, if I didn't have the show, I, I probably would be off social media too. But uh, but I, I do enjoy doing the show and all that stuff helps. So if you're on social media, check out all my accounts, follow them, like them, whatever it is on whichever platform. And I, like I said, I will return the favor in kind. When you go on any of my social media, you will see the logo for the show. And if you like the logo, you can wear it. That's right. I have merchandise. I do. You know that. Well, you don't know that if you're a first-time listener, but if you're back, you know I have merchandise. And if you'd like to order some of the Coliseum Chronicles, the Penalty Box podcast merchandise, you can do that at teespring.com 
slash stores slash Coliseum hyphen Chronicles hyphen merch. Or the easiest thing to do, scroll to the bottom of the description of this episode on the platform you're listening to, and there's a direct link right there to the page. Now, what I am doing, what I've done the last few weeks and what I will continue to do is offer discounts to listeners. These are listener-exclusive discounts. And I know a few people have taken advantage of them, and that's awesome because it means that someone out there is listening. And also you get some fine quality merchandise at a discounted price. So for this week, you will have seven days to use the code Marini. That's right. I'm a proud Italian. And Hector the Protector spent some time with, spent some time with the Islanders. So this week's discount code is Marini, M-A-R-I-N-I. Use that code at the Coliseum Chronicles podcast merchandise store, and you will get 20% off your entire order. Again, a listener exclusive. Thank you for listening to the show. And when you see that logo and you go, damn, that is a good logo. Last night at the party, uh, one of my friends, he, uh, he wanted to know about the podcast. He went on, he saw the logo, and he's like, wow, that's, that's really great. And I said, it is. And I'll tout the logo because I didn't draw it. I couldn't draw that on my best day. The guy who did draw it, Joe Marisic, local Long Island artist, absolutely talented. I am always in awe of people that can do things I can't do, which you're probably thinking you must be in awe of most of the population. Somewhat. But Joe is gifted. Joe's, I'm going to assume he's right-handed, but I actually don't know. Joe's right hand has been touched by God in terms of his artistic ability. Check out his stuff on Twitter at GraphicsJoker or at LoudEgg.com. You can see all the different art that Joe has done. Joe is available for hire. Definitely give him a look. And you do not need, you do not need to go anywhere else if you have an art project you need done. Definitely check out Joe. Are you looking to get in shape or stay in shape? Well, if you're here on Long Island or even in one of the boroughs and don't mind making a trip, it's worth it, trust me. Belmore Kickboxing and MMA. Belmore Kickboxing and MMA is Long Island's premier mixed martial arts gym. Open seven days a week. There are classes available for everybody. Men's classes, women's classes, kids' classes. There's a class for you. If you're listening to this, there is a class for you, trust me. There are also private training sessions available. Now, this gym, there is a very... Um, well-known gym in combat sports because many many professional fighters over the years have trained there some of the current fighters that train there uh john volante gregor gillespie andre harrison adam konachki uh, chris algieri they're just a few of many guys who have walked through that gym and um you know have made made their living being a professional fighter but that is really a small percentage of the membership there most of the members are regular people like you and I. So I would highly recommend do a little research, check it out. Belmore Kickboxing MMA is located at 2551 Merrick Road in Belmore, New York, 516-679-5997. You could check out their website, belmorekickboxingmma.com. Now, once your interest is peaked, you're going to want to get in touch with them and tell them that you heard about the gym on the show. So when you do that, you're going to call there send an email, whatever, you're going to ask for Keith Trimble. There are certain people, like I said, that I am in awe of, and Keith is one of them. Keith is, in my opinion, the best trainer on the planet. He's also a great guy and a great friend. So 
When you contact the gym, ask for Keith and say, Keith, I heard about the gym on Coliseum Chronicles, and Joe said that I am eligible to get one free class, and I'd like to do that. So can you send me a schedule or however you want to work it? And when you get that schedule, sign up for the class, take the class. You're going to love it. You're going to join the club, join the gym. I know you will. So definitely take advantage of that offer. Uh, and if, if you want to do it for someone else, get in touch with Keith. Say, hey, my significant other, I would like them to take a class. I'd like my kid to take a class. He's very easy to work with. He'll work with you. Uh, like I said, great guy, great friend. So definitely check it out. Belmore Kickboxing and MMA Train. Where the champions train. It's so funny. I was just about to say just a few more things, and I always do it after that, but just a few more things before we get uh, get going here. Um, if you're if you're a fan of this podcast, there are a few other podcasts that you probably know about, but just in case you don't, the Fourth Line Voice podcast with my friend Darren. Darren is based out of Saskatoon. I think he got a lot of snow, or they were supposed to get snow. I I uh, have a lot of uh, friends up there in Saskatchewan, and I believe they were all talking about snow. So I don't know yet. I don't know if he got the snow yet, but um, we had 70 degrees yesterday, Darren. Sorry about that. Or I don't know what that is in the Celsius. But but Fourth Line Voice podcast, his latest episode, although there will be an episode put out today on Sunday, which I'm not sure what it is going to be. So his last episode was with a, a fan named Nick Cameron. Nick is an old-school Missouri River Otters fan, and they went through the top five Missouri River Otters fighters of all time. I believe Nick also has a, a music podcast out there, and uh, so I would check it out. if you, I think it's uh, like a hard rock or metal podcast, so if you like that kind of thing, definitely check out the episode for that content, the River Otters content, and uh, find out about uh, Nick's podcast if you like that kind of thing. Um. So Darren was doing uh, on Sundays from the vault episodes from his old website, which is now defunct. He's all caught up with that. So I don't know if he's decided yet what his Sunday episodes are going to be. Like I said, I'm recording this early Sunday. I don't know what the episode's going to be today, but on Wednesdays, he has player interviews, fan interviews. Um, basically, it's a must listen, as are the other two podcasts I'm going to tell you about. It's a must listen. So please check out the fourth line voice podcast. If you go back a couple of episodes ago, uh, I did an interview with Darren two years ago. That was his, uh, from the vault episode a couple of Sundays ago. We did it two years ago. It's not really dated. We talk a lot, a lot of old school Islander stuff. And we talk about the incident that I had on the subway. So, um, two hours of goodness. Like I said, it, uh, it's definitely worth a listen. Darren's great. So, uh, check it out. And also if you're a fan of hockey fights and you have YouTube, you most likely have watched a fight or a dozen on Darren's YouTube channel, the fourth line voice YouTube channel. So I urge you to listen to the show and go to his YouTube channel. Now, every week I say, I'm going to get in touch with Bobby and find out what the story is here with his uh, show. But the bucket drop podcast, my friend, Bobby Longgrass, he's done 50 episodes and uh, he's on hiatus now, I believe, until 2021. I hope he's coming back. I don't really know. Um, but uh, while he's on hiatus, please go back into the Bucket Drop podcast archives and check out all his uh, past shows. I was on there a few times, and uh, I, always had a f I always had fun doing those shows. So uh, I hope he's coming back. I don't really know for sure. But uh, but definitely, like I said about uh, Fourth Line Voice, definitely check out the Bucket Drop, check out the archives, get yourself ready for 2021. 
And uh, finally, the Five for Fighting podcast. Like I said about Bucket Drop and like I said about Fourth Line Voice, check out the Five for Fighting podcast. Alec was on a bit of a hiatus himself. He was moving, which everyone knows sucks balls. And uh, Alec, I, uh, if you're listening, I hope you feel better. Alec uh, was one of the latest people to come down with COVID. Uh, I'm sure COVID is no match for him, though. And uh, maybe by the time this is published, he's probably feeling a lot better. And uh, COVID is a thing of the past. But I think him getting COVID prevented his latest episode from coming out. So hopefully, at some point this week, the latest episode of the Five for Fighting podcast will emerge like a phoenix from the ashes. But uh, definitely check out Five for Fighting. Check out Bucket Drop. Check out Fourth Line Voice. And Alec from Five for Fighting uh, is the uh, emperor of two groups on Facebook that I'm sure you'll be interested in. The Enforcer Appreciation page. I believe there are over 12,000, 13,000 members. Lots of enforcers on there. Lots of good stories. Lots of good videos. Lots of good pictures. Uh, if you're not a member, definitely go and uh, join up. And more recently, he started the QSPHL slash LNAH jersey and equipment page on Facebook. Um, I only have one jersey from that league, and uh, it's Mike Bray, former Islander draft pick, so I posted that. Uh, I love these jerseys. Whether you like the league or not, the jerseys are always something to see. They're, they're pretty colorful and uh, lots of alterations and things like that. So I would definitely uh, sign up for that, too. So definitely check out those pages. So. Just a few more items before we get into the Mike Cornell interview. So unless you have been living under a rock, and again, if you have been, I don't blame you one bit. Uh, apparently, down here in the States, we might have a new president. I don't know. Uh, I see that uh, he, we might have a new president, but then we may not. I don't know. But... Uh, Yet uh, news broke yesterday that uh, we do. I, I honestly don't know. It's it's dizzying to be honest with you. So uh, I don't really know if we have a new president or not. I don't know if there's going to be any lawsuits or whatever. It's really not my lane. So uh, what I will say though is, could you imagine if because yesterday everything was Biden, 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 this, Biden, that. And all I was thinking is, could you imagine if this is reversed? Could you imagine if after everything that's gone on the last couple of days where everyone's out and I guess, I don't know, like I saw a lot of different gatherings, not much social distancing, by the way, but anyway, um, if, could you imagine if this is reversed? The rioting, ah, I mean, <laughs> the demonstrating that's going to go on. If this is reversed, can you imagine that? But like I said, it's not my thing. It's not my lane. Uh, I will be happy when it's over. And if I had one thing to ask of President Harris, if I had one thing to ask, if she could start a campaign that I would like to call Hug a 2016er. Now, if you know me or if you've listened to past shows when I've talked about it, a 2016er, and there are millions of them, 2016er is someone who didn't give a shit about politics before 2016 you know who you are and if it's not you you know someone who is you probably know 50 people who are and the 2016ers are dangerous because they get most of their information from memes oh my voice cracked there <clears throat> excuse me see i told you the chunky shit you know um they're very dangerous they get most of their political information from memes they do not do their due diligence although some of them if you check their browser history there'll be a lot of questions 
you know, there'll be a lot of Google inquiries, a lot of Wikipedia where they get their political information because the, of course never gave a shit about politics. Then, it, and this is both sides, by the way, uh, both sides, conservative and liberal, both 2016, 2016 er affliction does not discriminate. There's 2016 ers on both sides and they're the same thing. Didn't give, didn't give a shit about politics for 2016. And now they know everything, but what what's happened is the last and i'll say five years because obviously it started before the last election but the last five years they've lived their lives every day worrying about donald trump or pumping his tires one or the other and really for the last four and a half five years this has been their life they've lost friends or they've shunned friends some that they've grown up with they feuded with family members. There is irreparable damages to so many families. And it's not because of the people who have been into politics their whole life. It's because of the 2016ers. And there, there, are, there is irreparable family damage to millions of families because of the 2016ers, because they know everything. So, President Harris, could you please start the hug a 2016er interview? Now, how do you know a 2016er? Again, my voice cracked. There'll be the people that you see walking around outside with nothing to do and nowhere to go. They'll just look lost because they forgot what their life was like before Trump was the uh, Republican nominee in, in the last election. They don't know. They don't remember what they used to do. They don't remember how to have a good time or how to focus on something else. So please, if you're out and about, even before the president may make this an initiative, if you see someone out there that looks lost, they're probably a 2016er. Go give them a hug and try to help them remember what their life was like pre-2016 when maybe they smiled or their life was based in reality. They're not dangerous anymore. They shouldn't be dangerous anymore. And hopefully within three to six to nine months, their life will be back to normal. And I can only pray for all of you 2016ers who adjusted your life the last four years and now have to get back to a certain semblance of order. So my heart goes out to the 2016ers. Please be careful out there. The world is different than the way you left it when you changed your entire life for something you really don't give a shit about. So again, hug a 2016er. Also, my friend Yuka. Yuka is a Finn. I like to call him a Swede. If you know anything about the Finns and the Swedes, they're not big fans of each other. I don't know if that's still true, by the way. I know this world we live in now, it's a kinder, gentler world. Um, but I know back in the day, the Finns and the Swedes really weren't fans of each other. So if I want to needle Yuka a little bit, I call him a Swede. Um, but Yuka did a really monstrous favor for me. And, um, you know, I, I can't thank him enough. And, the uh, irony of this is Yuka has said for all these podcasts that uh, I had my podcast and the other ones I had told you about, and even the ones that I don't know every podcast he listens to, but if it's an interview-based show, he doesn't listen to intros. So Yuka, I hope you're listening to this intro. Thank you very much for the favor that you just did for me. Uh, really means a lot to me. Saved me a whole lot of time, and uh, it was awesome. And thank you. Uh, I posted on my social media. Uh, out of the kindness of his heart, he sent me a Team Italy game used hockey jersey that is beat to shit. And, uh, you know, thank you, Yuka. Yeah, what you did for me means a lot to me. Thank you so much. Now, I'd like to address one other thing and then we'll get going here. So, um, 
a podcast that I listen to, Cam and Strick. It's Cam Jansen. And uh, <laughs> sorry, man. I think his last name is Strickland. I, I think he, I, I don't know anything really about him. Obviously, I know Cam Jansen. And I'm not, I, I, dude, I'm really sorry. I'm not that you listen to this anyway, but um, they recently had Michael Haley on. And if you're an Islanders fan, you know Michael Haley. And whenever another show gets on a guy like a Michael Haley or a Trevor Gillies or guys like that, all of a sudden, I'm getting texts and messages inbox. Hey, did you see this show had this guy on? Did you see this show had that guy on? Yes, because chances are if uh, if you're listening to that show and you're telling me about a guest that they have on, I subscribe to that show. So yeah, I'm well aware of it. And then it's always, how come you didn't get that guy? Or can you get that guy? Or are you going to look into it or whatever? And so to everyone out there, yes, I do know that Michael Haley was on the Cam and Strick podcast. Yes, I did listen. And yes, I think they did a great job. Also, yes, I would love to get Michael Haley on. So here's the difference. Cam Jansen is, uh, I was going to say a former badass. He's probably still a badass. He could probably do a lot of damage, but he's a former NHL killer, uh, still in the fraternity. And I think his partner, I think he's an NHL.com writer. He probably does. I, I, there's no more such thing as he just does one thing. I'm sure he does a lot of different shit. So he's in the loop too. So in terms of where I can access guys and where a guy like Cam Jansen or is it Andy Strickland, is that his name? Dude, I am really sorry. I, I not, you know, I, I think it's Andy Strickland. So Andy Strickland and Cam Jansen have access to players that I have no access to. I have social media. I have my little network of guys. Hey, do you know this guy? Do you know that guy? Which, by the way, I have used, had have had some success. And also, most of the guys that I have mentioned that have blown me off were, hey, do you know this guy? Yeah, here's his number. Uh, he said I can give you his number. And then, it, you know, you just get blown off. So um, I would love to have Michael Haley on the show. I met Michael, um, you know, like I said, in uh, after everything had happened uh, on the subway there. I spent a lot of time with that team, uh, the 2011-12 uh, team, and uh, no, 2010-11 team, I'm sorry, because that was 2011. And uh, I met Michael, cool guy, not sure he'd remember me. I, I, I hope he would. I'd like to think he would. I'm pretty memorable. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but no, I would love to have Michael Haley on the show. Are you fucking kidding me? I would love to have him on the show. And I think that, that Cam and Strick did a great job on the show, and it's cool because Cam played in the OHL, Mike played in the OHL, and you know, listen, there. I would be fooling myself into thinking that the players don't respond differently to someone like myself uh, and, a, and a former player. It, it would just be stupid for me to think that, or someone in the NHL media. All right, there are guys that have asked to be on the show that have said no or have asked me like a maybe could you do this for me and I and I'll do your show and I I you know I I had to say no like I it was I wasn't comfortable doing it but they've done other shows and that's cool man I I am not it's not a jealousy thing because if I can't get a guy on my show, I hope they do other shows. I want to hear their story. I want to listen to it. Absolutely 100%. Uh, as, as Darren has said, we're the mom and pop store in the podcast world. We don't have, uh, we don't have the listenership, I'm sure, of Cam and Strick or, or the other podcasts out there that you know about. And that's fine because ultimately I'm doing this for fun. I love doing it. But yeah, fuck, I'd love to have Michael Haley on the show. If, if you're thinking of a guy right now, that is affiliated with the Islanders organization that has not been on my show. Yes, I'd love to get him on the show. 100% I'd love it. Okay. If he hasn't been on the show, 
there's a reason for it. The reason is maybe they've said no. Maybe we couldn't work out a time. Uh, maybe I have no access to them. So if you're listening and you know Michael Haley, let him know I want him to come on the show. <laughs> of course I want him on the show. But, uh, but yeah, no, because this, this has happened a few times. It's probably happened uh, three or four times where uh, a guy that played for the Islanders, that fought for the Islanders, has been on other shows. And then my inbox and my text get filled with messages. Hey, did you hear so-and-so on that? Yeah, of course I heard him on the show. It was a great interview. And yes, of course I'd love to have him on my show. But, you know, like I said, there, there, you know, like there is definitely um, something to be said for a former player reaching out to a former player and a ham and agger like myself. And I'm, I accept that. It's all good, man. You guys that are messaging me, all I'm saying is I know you're going to keep doing it and that's fine. But yes, if you're going to say, Hey, did you hear this guy on that show? Of course I heard him on the show and I'm sure it was a great interview. Cam and Strick did a great job with Michael Haley. It was awesome. I really enjoyed it, but yeah, I'd love to get Michael Haley on my show too. So if I don't know him though, I mean, I met him a few times. I don't have his number. He's not on social media. I have no way of getting in touch with him. But if you do, let him know. Absolutely, 100%. Like I said, any Islander that has fought or hit or played a physical grinding style of play that fits into this genre that I am a part of, yes, I want them on the show. If, if they haven't been on the show, I can tell you the reason why. It's no problem. Just reach out to me and I'll let you know. But yeah, great job with Michael Haley, guys. It was it was wonderful. Another question that I have received was, why do I have so many minor league players on the show? Which I feel like I'll address today. As my guest today, Mike Cornell, uh, has never played an NHL game. And to me, that doesn't take away anything from his amazing career. Uh, if you caught the John Forsland episode, uh, I brought up a show called Ringside, which I started watching in probably i don't want to say the mid 80s but it definitely was it was mid to late 80s let's say where when it started appearing on sports channel and it was uh, a show about the american hockey league that uh, you just the first episode i watched i was addicted to and it was a great show and before that i would follow the miners as much as you could back then which was really not much if they put the stats in the hockey news or um you know season stats or as they were going I followed it as much as i could but you know, this is pre-internet, so it wasn't too much. And then along comes Rinkside, and I loved it, and it was great. And it actually put videos to the guys that I've been following. It put uh, videos, it put faces to names and, and all this other good stuff. So that really is, I was always interested in the miners. It was more of a curiosity. Then along comes Rinkside, and it just amped it up tenfold. And then, you know, as, as life goes on, uh, and progress is made and there's internet and there's this and there's that i get a license now i can drive to these minor league arenas and as i've said in the past my first ahl game was the last game that uh, first ahl game in person was the last game the islanders had the springfield indians as their affiliate as they won the calder cup over rochester that was my first ever ahl game in person it was unbelievable it was it was unbelievable i'm gonna leave it at unbelievable it was fucking amazing and since then i'm 50 by the way i've been driving since i'm 18 so in the, my 32 years of driving i have been to hundreds of minor league hockey games and i'll say a hundred maybe over a hundred minor league baseball games 
I love, love minor league sports. I love it. And obviously more so minor league hockey. And I've been fortunate enough to make several relationships and friendships over the years. So, you know, after the games, I was always down by the locker room, seeing the guys, you know, seeing coaches, whatever it is. I've been really lucky that way. I've really, you know, as much as I say that, you know, former players will respond more to former players. I, I really don't want that to dismiss the relationships that I have made over the years. Uh, I've been very lucky. And uh, the minor league games, the whole minor league experience for me, the game has always been a part of it because there's always been before the game, uh, if I'm there to see a particular player and he's not playing, maybe we do dinner or something like that. And then after the game going down, you know, see the boys hang out a little bit before they jump on the bus or if they're staying in town, maybe go get a beer or whatever. Um, It's the whole experience of it all. And part of that experience are, is hearing the stories and realizing that these guys in the minors, now I'm sure in 2020, the guys in the minors are making a decent living. Uh, nothing compared to their NHL counterparts, but I'm sure they're making a decent living. But especially back in the day when I first really got into this, they were making nothing. And um, I think that's really where my admiration for these athletes really started because it's if you're if you're a professional athlete, the goal is always to make it to the show and make that money and do your thing and make as much as you can and then and then get out and these guys in the minors they're doing it because they love the sport yes they're doing it because they want to get to the nhl they want to get to major league baseball whatever obviously that's the that's the road that they're going to take but most of the guy i mean if you think about it how many guys on a on a 20-man roster make the nhl and make a career out of it i would say i don't know 25 percent. that might be high i don't know but minor league rosters are filled with guys every year who are never going to make the NHL, and these guys do it. It's their living. They love the game. They do it. They're not doing it to get rich. I respect these guys so much because I'm sure a lot of these guys have options. A lot of these guys are college graduates. They may have options in their business world or something where they can make more money retiring from hockey and getting a real job, but they don't because they love the game. and. um you know, just it's really, it really is about respect. And what happens is now, so, you know, I've had a lot of guys on here that have never played in the NHL and I love it. I love, I've had NHLers on the show and I've had guys who've never played in the NHL and the minor league guys really, they're the ones with the stories, you know, they're the ones with the stories because their story doesn't end with, and then I made the NHL and I made a shit ton of money and I retired and now I have a house here and a house here. It's yeah, I play in the minors and I might have to work a job in the off season. I have two kids, I have a wife, I have, you know, bills to pay and shit like that. I mean, these are these are the people that I can relate to and they're probably the people that you can relate to. And I, and I I understand if you you know, there are people out there that sports fans that don't follow the minors. So maybe they don't have an interest in these guys and that's fine. That's fine. But I do. And and my admiration and my love for minor league sports. Hey, yesterday I got um a message on Twitter uh, well, not a message. It came across my timeline. The Somerset Patriots are now the double A affiliate of the New York Yankees. Um, when my wife and my, my wife and I moved down to Philadelphia and we started our family, uh, we would go to Somerset Patriots games all the time. It was an amazing experience. The people that work there are amazing. And yesterday across my feed, I, oh, and they were in the Atlantic league, the independent leagues. So if you're on long Island, it's the league that the long Island ducks are in. 
And I remember when, when we would, I, my kids were young and we go to the games and I don't know how it came up. And I, I think if you're young and you just think all these athletes, they make a ton of money. And I said to my son, I probably make more money than these guys. And he was, he was like, really? And I said, yeah. And I wasn't, I wasn't making a ton of money at the time, but I said, I probably make more money than them. I said, they're playing the game because they love it. They love the game. They're playing the game for themselves or playing the game for us. And they don't make a shit ton of money doing it. So the answer to the question, and a few people ask me, why do you have so many minor league guys on? First and foremost is the respect that I have for these guys and the admiration that I have for these guys because of what they're doing, okay, and that they're still playing. And like I said, I'm sure a lot of these guys do have other options, but they're playing the game that they love. And really, and it goes a little bit further than the respect and the admiration I have for the player. It's also the respect and admiration I have for their wives because, um, you know, everybody knows once you get married and start having kids, your decision is not your decision. It's a family decision. And a lot of these, these wives and the families, they're okay with it. They say, look, go for it. It's your, it's your one shot, you know, and, uh, you know, just go for it. You're good enough to play in the minors. You might be good enough to make the NHL one day. Go for it. So it's really a respect for the, the, the player and their families that they're, they're doing this, that they're willing to sacrifice. Cause you know, I, I was talking to my wife about this yesterday when, when I, um, when we lived in Philly and I would travel every day, uh, from Philly to New York to work. And I was basically missing five hours a day of my family time. And that was a sacrifice, but I don't look at it as it was a sacrifice for me, but more so it was a sacrifice for my wife and my kids. And, uh, there's a part of me that feels guilty about it to this day, but the families really sacrifice. And, um, so why do I have minor league guys on again? I respect these guys. I admire these guys. And, you know, they're the ones with the stories. You always hear about all oh, the bus rides and this and that. And, and whenever you hear a guy, no matter what level of hockey they attained and, and they retire, what do you miss? It's always the locker room and the bus rides because that's where you become brothers. And that these guys, the minor league guys, you know, they're not playing in front of 19,000 people at Madison Square Garden. There are probably some nights during the week they're playing in front of a thousand people at some old barn. It doesn't matter. They're doing it because they love it. So um, that's why I get minor league guys on here. Because first of all, I'm a fan. Second of all, these guys, they have great stories. And, and you know what? Their stories should be told. Of course they should be told. I only feel bad that if they're doing it on my show, I don't have the listeners that the bigger name podcasts have because I don't know how many people I'm so, st I'm such a rube. I'm on chartable. I get my fucking numbers every day. I get my reports every day. I don't even know what I'm looking at, to be honest with you, because my, my show to me, it's not about the numbers. It's about the interviews. It's about the guys. It's about the boys and their stories. So I don't know if there's one of you listening. I don't know if there's 10,000 of you listening. I have no idea. Okay. I don't have a producer. I don't have a guy making my phone calls, getting guys. That's why I, you know, it goes back to, I'm, if you hear a guest on this show, I had to go out and get the guest. And I love doing that. I love the, the thrill of the hunt, let's say, but, um, I don't have anyone to go, Hey, look at the numbers you're doing. Look at this. I don't, I don't know what the fuck I'm looking at. Okay, so for a guy like Mike Cornell or a guy like Jody Robinson, let's say uh, a couple of my most recent guests, I feel bad that the, these interviews aren't on a bigger platform for them because they have great stories. So I am really appreciative that they, they said yes, they would do the show. 
I, I wish I had more listeners for them because I think they have great stories. But anyway, um, hopefully that puts some answers to the people who have messaged me about getting certain guests that have appeared on other shows and why I have minor league guys on here that have never played for the Islanders. That's why. And um, if you're one of those guys who has been on the show, it means the world to me that you've done the show and that you shared your journey with me. And that goes for all my guests. So uh, this, like I said, today is just Mike Cornell. Mike, thank you so much for, um, for doing this for me. Uh, finally, the Matt Martin watch, as you know, every episode I touch on the Matt Martin watch, no updates on Matt Martin. There was some news with the Islanders this week. Ryan Pollock, uh, did sign two year deal, $10 million. Uh, I don't know how it breaks down by season. I think the first year he's making more. I, I honestly don't know. Uh, I just know it's two years, ten million. So I don't know if uh, they're waiting to get Barzal wrapped up to sign these guys like uh, Martin or Andy Green, uh, Broussard. Like I, I don't know what the what Lou is doing. I mean, as long as Lou knows what what he's doing, that's fine. I, I would think all signs are pointing to Martin coming back. Like I say every week, he hasn't signed with anyone else. Um, and nobody's really signing. It seems like lately there was kind of that little free agent period where everyone was signing and then uh, kind of died down a little bit. But um, Pulak's on in the fold now, two years, and and good for him because he's going to be unrestricted. I think at twenty eight, and he's a, he's a top pair defenseman. So this guy's going to cash in big time in a few years. So uh, hopefully it's with the Islanders, but that's a few years away. But Matt Martin, no news. And um, like I, I think we all know it's only a matter of time before he's going to resign here. So um, anyway, Matt, if you're listening, I don't think you listen. I think you should listen, but maybe you listen. I don't know. You're definitely aware of the show. I know that. But Matt, come on, get signed, all right? I think it, everybody here will feel, feel a little more comfortable and breathe a little easier when we got number 17 signed for another year or two. So let's get this done. Let me see if I can get Lou on the phone. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, listen, guys, I have now rambled for 40 minutes. You have been patiently waiting for Mike Cornell. So I'm going to bring that to you right now. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you, uh, I hope you people enjoy the Mike Cornell interview. Have a great day. Ladies and gentlemen, today it is my pleasure to bring to you a man who has played a few seasons in the Islanders organization. If you're not familiar with him on the Island, I would highly suggest you going to YouTube and watching some of his highlights when uh, you're done listening to this. Uh, I, I have to find out if he has a nickname because if it isn't, I think the wrecking ball is a good nickname for my guest today because dude, you hit like a train ladies and gentlemen, I'd like uh, to present to you, Mr. Mike Cornell. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing well, thanks. I, I haven't got the wrecking ball yet, but I've certainly been called a lot worse, so maybe <laughs> I should t I should pick that one up, maybe. Oh, we're going to get into your hitting a little bit later, but I'm telling everybody out there, if uh, if you appreciate the old school hockey like I do, and you like seeing some big open ice hits, I mean, put Mike's name into that search engine. You have obliterated some guys, so, uh, so that was very fun to see. But the first question that I, I normally ask everybody, and I'm going to make it your second question, um... I've, I've done my research on you and everywhere that I have looked, it has you being born in Franklin, Massachusetts. But for those of us that like to dig a little deeper, you were actually born in Burlington, Ontario, correct? Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's actually, uh, 
some kudos to you. Not many people know that, and it always, you know, ends up in a little conversation in the locker when it when it slips out there. But yeah, I've just uh, for whatever reason, I, obviously, I've never uh, reached out to correct any of those sites or you know HockeyDB or anything like that. But um, yeah, I was born in Burlington, Ontario, and uh, lived in Peterborough, Ontario, for a little bit, a little bit too, and then uh, you know made our way down to the states, and we've lived here since. But uh, I had both passports, so. Uh, if things get too crazy on either side, I'll just hop over, hop over the border and, and hide out there for a the little while. But, uh, you know, it's, it's fun to, uh, you know, be kind of neutral and can root for both teams and, and uh, have some fun with it. Well, it sounds like a plan. And I saw on YouTube uh, someone kind of put you on the spot asking you if you had to play for one of the national teams, who would you pick? And uh, I know you kind of didn't really give an answer, so I'm assuming you still haven't decided yet. Yeah, you know what? I guess fortunately and unfortunately, probably more unfortunately, I haven't had the chance to have been asked in either situation. But, you know, I, I, obviously I think USA Hockey's done a tremendous job recently. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, it just probably means a little bit more to the Canadian people. And I think, uh, you know, even you think about World Juniors or something like that, it's almost a, a national holiday there. So I'd probably have to lean that way. But uh, obviously it would be an honor to be a, a part of either. Well, here's here's something that I don't know if you've taken into consideration that might help you decide if the time comes. Go to the team you're going to play more. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think you're exactly right. <laughs> so, um, how old were you when you moved to Massachusetts? I was seven, and uh, we moved around a little bit. My dad was with the same company forever, but uh, we moved out to the Midwest for a couple years, and uh, probably where I get my little bit of tenacity from, my mom gave him two years and basically said, yeah, we'll move out to Indiana for two years. And if we don't like it, we're going back to Massachusetts. And uh, I think it was two years to the day we went back to the same street. So um, that's where I kind of consider home now. And, and I actually make uh, my home now in the same in the same town that I grew up in, just the opposite side of the town of my parents. So this is the first question I usually ask people, but I wanted to clear that up before, uh, before I ask you this. So um, if I had a time machine and I went back to see a young Mike Cornell, be it on the ponds in Burlington, Ontario, or a rink in uh, Massachusetts, uh, I always say when I was younger and I played street hockey, I was always Clark Gillies or Bobby Nystrom. Uh, who would I? Who would a young Mike Cornell be if I was able to go back and see a, a, a little Mike Cornell? Yeah, I mean, I wish I could tell you someone like awesome power play guy or a little you know skill forward or a skilled defenseman or something, but I think for whatever reason I've always kind of had a you know, an interest in some of the scrappier guys. Like I was a big, you know, Chelios highlights guy when I was coming up. And then obviously being in, in the Boston area kind of during their heyday a few years ago, I was a big uh, Andrew Ferentz fan. And I thought he played hard. He was a smaller defenseman too, a guy that I could kind of look up to. So those are a couple of guys that kind of come to mind. And um, again, probably guys that uh, could produce a little bit offensively and were hard to play against every night. I got you. I, I, well, you definitely fit the bill of hard to play against every night. That's for sure. Uh, we're going to fast forward to your high school. Now you went to Mount St. Charles Academy. Now uh, I'm a little older than you. So the first time I had ever heard of Mount St. Charles was when Brian Lawton was, uh, was being drafted. That's the first time I had ever heard of it. And uh, since then, I know there's been other NHL players like uh, Matthew Schneider, uh, Keith Carney, Jeff Jilson, and Islander fans uh, know very well, Brian Burrard. Uh, he went there. Uh, what was that experience like? I would imagine, uh, I don't know much about the school uh, other than I would imagine it's a pretty prestigious school, uh, both for academics and for athletics. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was kind of like a hockey historian's dream. You know, obviously you, you had rifled off some of the names there and, and there was still so much nostalgia around the building and the locker room and 
know, I think uh, even when I was there, anyway, it's, it's changed, but there was still a chain link fence around the around the boards rather than glass. So nice. that was kind of a, a unique situation, and we'd all burn through our jerseys and gloves pretty quick during the season. But it was kind of like our own little home ice advantage. But um, you know, like you just said, just to have that. Uh, about a history that had come through, you know, those doors and, and the guys who had went on after graduating there or after playing there and, and, you know, went on to historic careers and, and many guys who are still in the game, whether it's in the front office or scouting or whatever. Um, it was a cool little piece of history to be a part of. And um, I only played a couple of years there. I went on to play junior after, after those couple of years, but um, you know, like anything else, you look back on it with a lot of fond memories and, and, uh, They've kind of revamped the program in the last few years, so it's um, it's cool to say that I was a part of it at one point. And uh, one of the things I couldn't verify because I saw um, a few different numbers, how many state championships did you win while you were there? I saw as many as three. I saw as little as one. Yeah, so it was my first, I played my freshman and sophomore year there, and uh, we won it my first year, and we lost it my second year, and, and that was obviously a pretty uh, tumultuous time. I think it was uh, 26 in a row that they had won, and, and obviously – you take it with a grain of salt being in, in Rhode Island, but, um, you know, even just nationally and playing in New England, I thought the teams, you know, typically fared pretty well. And, and obviously the, the guys a lot bigger than I am that, uh, you know, left to go on and play in the NHL, you know, spoke to uh, the caliber of teams that they had. And, um, you know, they were uh, a demanding program and, and I feel better for having been a part of it. Great. Now, uh, you mentioned that you moved on to juniors. So, obviously, I think most hockey fans uh, are familiar with, say, Canadian juniors and the major juniors up there. And I know that uh, U.S. Uh, junior hockey is really growing. I mean, in the last probably 10, 20 years, I think the uh, Team USA, uh, the USA junior hockey program here is, is really grown by leaps and bounds. So, uh, you played uh, your first team, if I'm not mistaken, was the Walpole Junior Stars. So, I guess my question would be, and, and I don't know if you know this for sure, but what would the equivalent of, of that junior hockey be, say, uh, to Canadian junior? In other words, like, would it be equivalent to, say, major junior, junior A, junior B? Do you have any idea the the comparison? Yeah, I would say, I mean, it's it's basically defunct since they've renamed it a handful of times. But I would say that it would be on par with maybe today's BCHL, so like junior okay. A hockey in Canada. Um, obviously, a step below uh, major junior or, or probably even the USHL. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously it's today it's like the USHL is on par with major junior it seems as far as yeah. development and draft picks so it was definitely a step below but in um, I guess in my day it, it was nice because it was a quality league and you were in all the schools you kind of dreamed of going to you were in their backyard every Sunday afternoon playing games when, when the colleges weren't so it was a good fit for me and um, I learned a lot being a young guy and, and trying to find my way when a lot of the older guys were out of school and I was, you know, getting driven to practice at that time. It, it, uh, it kind of developed a, a work, work ethic in me and it made me realize, you know, I had a lot of work to do to get where I wanted to go. And, uh, how did you end up with Walpole? Is it, was it a uh, geography based or were, was there sort of a, a draft? How did you end up there? Yeah. So, uh, I grew up in, in kind of like the mass hockey system at the time it was called the satellite program and, and it was basically trying to develop players in, in Massachusetts and, uh, one of the coaches that I had kind of growing up through that process was a guy named Jack Sweeney, and he happened to also be the uh, junior coach with Walpole. And um, so when things kind of developed naturally, he offered me a place to play there. And, um, you know, it, it, we kind of debated back and forth as a family to, to go to prep school or play junior. And 
I think for whatever reason, I've kind of always been all in on hockey. And so that was kind of the, uh, the decision that I, that I went with. And, um, you know, I, just playing in the league at 16, it was, it was nice to have a little bit of attention from schools and then things kind of went stale for a couple of years and I kind of had to refine my game a little bit. And, um, you know, obviously at that point I had moved on to a different organization my last year junior and, um, kind of found my way. But, uh, like I said, all these different little experiences along the way, help me to this day and I'm sure it'll help me down the line as well now I saw two years later you played for the Foxborough Stars was that the same team that had just moved yes exactly they just changed buildings they probably went down the street about 10-12 minutes and, <laughs> and changed the name and then actually beyond that too even when it became the South Shore Kings it was all basically the same organization the same ownership so uh, on paper it probably looks worse than it was but believe it or not I think all those years were the same group now, I think you, you had made mention to it your last year of junior, and that was with the New Hampshire Junior Monarchs. Um, now, I did some research, and it seems like um, the coach, Sean Tremblay, uh, he played a big role in your, uh, it seems like maybe even your life, but at least in your hockey development. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, he was tremendous. I mean, he, he obviously had a reputation, at, you know, when I was growing up as a guy who could promote players and help develop players and men and and uh when i had the chance to go play for him it was a no-brainer and, and he kind of confirmed all of those things that i had heard about him for for many years and like i said things had, had kind of slowed down for me recruiting wise and i didn't really know what my future was going to look like and you know i had hopped on board with him and it was probably a couple of weeks later that he said hey listen i've got this guy coming and and um here's what i think an offer might look like for college and um and just had a plan in place for me. And, and, you know, the, the one thing that I always remember about him was like, he was extremely demanding. You know, we had a good team and a lot of guys moved on to, to play high level hockey, but it was truly like practices were harder than games. And, and he didn't care if you were going to be a first round pick or you were playing for, you know, for fun and you were going to be playing in beer leagues five years later, like he was demanding, but I always felt like he had a purpose for everything that he did. You know, he wasn't just going to belittle us or, Paredes for no reason. I always thought that he was very calculated and, and um, he made a nice career for himself. Now you played five years in the EJHL and three of those years you led your team in penalty minutes and the other two seasons you were second. So um, was there a lot of fighting in this league? No, there wasn't to be honest. I, mean, I think, uh, you know, it was probably a situation where once or twice a year maybe something happened. Um, but you know, they, they didn't allow it. You know, I think you probably would have been suspended had you fought. And yeah, I think you, I think if memory serves me correctly, I think if you fought, you had to sit the next game. So they really uh, deterred it. And, um, you know, like I said, there was probably uh, more fights in practice over the year than there would be, you know, in live game action, which is kind of bizarre. But, um, yeah, I think just trying to promote players to college hockey, they didn't really want to, uh, you know, uh, encourage it. Now, I see a couple of seasons that you were in junior, you were a captain of your team. And I think, uh, I think for like, I'm 50. So I think when, uh, I think of like captains, you think of NHL captains, you think of sort of like the grizzled veteran. I mean, I, I'm, I go back a little bit further than, Hey, your best player is your captain. I, I believe that being in the captain actually means something. And I think when, uh, when I think of like the, like I said, the grizzled veteran that draws on experiences that I usually is an older person. But when you're a captain and junior, is that a lot of pressure on you? Because obviously you might be older than some of the team, but you're still within the same, I would think, two or three year age bracket. Does that put pressure on you as a kid? 
You know what? I don't think so. You know what? I think a lot of guys kind of naturally fall into place too. Like maybe they just typically been leaders on their teams, maybe in years past or even just growing up, kind of developing over the seasons. They might have been in leadership roles where maybe they weren't identified or they were labeled the team captain. But, you know, I, I always tell people like if you're, if you're coaching junior hockey, like that's a, that's a tough time, right? Because guys might be, you know, struggling in school or maybe they have a, a girlfriend break up with them or something's going on at home. Like there's so many different factors. So, um, you know, I think being a captain at that point, it's like, you know, you, you really have to take care of your teammates and, and get to know them. And I think that's also probably the special part of it too, is that, you know, in junior hockey, especially like you become so close with those guys because everybody has the same goals and, and obviously you're working toward a common goal as well. So I never found it to be um, challenging, and it was always something that I was respectful of and, and uh, grateful for to be, you know, to be named a captain in, in any capacity. And, um, and it's always been something that I've kind of enjoyed, whether I've worn a letter or not. So I see that uh, your year with New Hampshire, you were uh, the regular season champions and you were the Tier 3 Junior A national champions? Yeah, exactly. I think that goes back to your question a little while ago about just kind of where things fit in. I think when at the time they were basically, there was like a USHL champion and then they had an NAHL champion and then uh, there was like an EJHL champion. And I think, I don't remember exactly how things shook out, but um, I think they basically had a um, kind of a a tournament at the end of the year and, and crowned a national champion maybe similar to how Canada does it with the I think they call it the RBC Cup where all the junior eight leagues play each other and that's kind of how they uh, you know how they find their champion but um, yeah we had a good year and, and like I said a couple of minutes ago they they had a lot of good players on the team I think I I think I went to Maine with four guys from my New Hampshire team um, Ryan DeMoulin was another guy that I played with who was a young player from Maine actually and he kind of came in uh and he looked like a little Bambi at the start, and all of a sudden, like 10, 15 games into the year, you're like, okay, this guy can play, and and he really has like unlimited potential. And so, you know, for uh, for us guys who who haven't made it, it's been fun to kind of watch his process and him establish himself and have the success that he had. But uh, you know, I think a lot of those guys, myself included, owe so much of that to Sean Trombley. Well, you brought up Maine, and that was uh, where I was going next. So. Uh, was college something you always wanted, uh, you know, going way back, I guess, uh, was that always the route you wanted to take or were there other options for you? Yeah, I think, uh, that was always, you know, the, the number one priority, you know, I didn't know where I was going to end up. I, I wasn't like a kid who, you know, was, um, uh, fanatical about BU or BC, you know, like I always just wanted to play in hockey. East. that was kind of my, my goal. And, um, you know, and there was something about, Maine that had a little bit of a mystique to it kind of being up in the woods and and having a lot of older guys and a lot of Canadians and they kind of beat to their own drum a little bit so um when that kind of came to fruition it was a dream come true for me and and kind of to give you some some insight on that my, my last year when I was going to play in New Hampshire um Bob Corkum was going to be our our coach our assistant coach to run the defenseman and he uh, obviously ended up with the Islanders for a little bit yeah. and had a had his own playing career and, and successful NHL career and he ended up um, going to Maine as an assistant. And so that's kind of what allowed me to get my foot in the door there. And then obviously he was always a a guy that I felt was in my corner and a guy that I could trust and learn from. And, and, you know, that kind of opened the door for me to get there. Um, Now was, so Maine was your number one choice. Did you get offers from other schools? I did. I had actually, uh, 
not many people know this, but I had actually committed to Bentley at the, you know, uh, I think at the beginning of my last year junior. And um, at the time it was kind of like, it was a school that I probably shouldn't have got into based on my academics alone. And, and obviously, especially playing junior at 20 years old, like you're not really expecting to have a, a 10 year NHL career. So you have to take those offers for good academics seriously. And, and it made sense. And then, I uh, kind of went through that recruiting process with them and, and um, was assured that I'd get into school and there'd be no issues with that. And then probably around the new year, they came back around and said, listen, you know, the school wants me to take some additional courses to kind of see how I'd um, adjust. And at that point, you know, I uh, kind of established a little bit of a relationship with with Corkum beyond what I had known him as at in New Hampshire. And, and I kind of saw an opportunity that there would be an opening at Maine and um, and obviously, the rest is kind of history. But I had taken visits elsewhere. I visited UMass. I visited Providence. And, um, you know, especially for for a kid growing up in this area, like even just to have, a, you know, a couple-hour tour of those buildings and locker rooms and, and get to meet the coaching staff, that was like, you know, that was my, my year made right there. So to finally get a chance to play was a, was a huge uh, accomplishment in my eyes. Now, did I read this correct that you were a walk-on at me? Yeah, so I committed basically because of my situation. I committed so late in the year that uh, um, pretty much there was like you know a couple thousand bucks left in the recruiting budget at that point. So I basically, I think my first semester, I pretty you know pretty much just had books covered and and probably part of my housing. And um, so you know for me to to get to the point where I you know I was in a leadership role my last couple of years and you know and established in the lineup and and having my schooling paid for was kind of like a little bit of my own Rudy story and um, and maybe that probably gave me a, a chip on my shoulders I entered into the next phase after college but um, you know they gave me an opportunity when they didn't have to and I wanted to prove them right every day so it I think it worked out well for both sides now just just from talking to you this past 20 minutes I I can hear the pride that you have in your area, you know, New England and, and just how you view the hockey program there. So I guess my, my first, uh, well, the first question regarding your actual playing at Maine is, do you remember the first time you put on that Maine jersey? Because it seems like something you would take a lot of pride in. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll never forget, like, the, the day my parents dropped me off at school and I met my roommate and, you know, we kind of made our way down to the rink and it was like the first skate on out on on the ice at the Alphon Arena there and, and it, I don't know if you've ever been or any seen any you know footage of it but it's like it's a hockey player's rink it's an old barn and the fans kind of hang right over you and it's got old boards and it's it's just an old barn and and uh, you know I just remember so well so vividly that first experience even just to you know throw on my equipment for practice that day and um, you know my parents are still hanging around and I know that that meant a lot to them too to just kind of see it all come to fruition and, and for me to get a chance to further my, you know, my academics, but also get to live out a dream of playing college hockey there was, was unbelievable. And, and, um, you know, I remember being a senior when it ended too. And you're like, you know, this, this whole journey just flew by. And, but even today I, I like to follow those guys around. I actually saw them when they were in, uh, playing sacred heart last year in Bridgeport. I got to connect with some of those guys and see their coaches and, and whatnot. So it's definitely a, a sense of pride and, and uh, four years that I look back on so fondly and, and uh, would recommend it to any kid kind of going through his own recruiting process. So as you were establishing yourself as a freshman with Maine, there was another guy there establishing himself as a freshman, and he has Long Island ties 
uh, and he actually was a teammate of yours, I believe, later on in Bridgeport. I think you know who I'm going to ask you about, and that's one Joey Diamond. Uh, tell me, tell me your impressions of Joey Diamond. Yeah, I mean, Joey's uh, he's become like a life friend for me. You know, we we uh, he was my roommate in college, actually, so that's kind of who I was just referring to. But mm-hmm. we both got dropped off. I was an older, I was a 20 year old freshman, and, and uh, uh, Joey had his own uh stuff going on so they kind of stuck us together and they said hey listen you guys are going to be in kind of a separate dorm from everybody else and and so that gave us a a bond right from the start and um you know for me he's just an absolute pit bull and and he's a guy that earned every single thing that he you know had in his life and and uh for those that you know don't know the family i think his his brother mike is probably six three and i always told joey i'm like if you could you know, if you ever had his size, you'd be Tom Wilson. You know, like I was I was a, a firm believer that he had something about him that was going to get him to where he wanted to go. And, and uh, we had our, our battles over the years for sure. Like, he, you know, he brought his work boots every day and I kind of prided myself on the same thing. So for us to come full circle and, and play, you know, live together for four years of college and then play pro together was, was pretty special. And, um you know, it was kind of funny story. I'll never forget it. But uh, there's a guy, Steve Swavely, who was a freshman at the time. This is Joey and I's senior year. And, and obviously, we're both captains at this point. And trying to right the ship, we were going through a little bit of a slow spell there. But um, you know, this guy, Swavely, just he's been with uh, Lehigh Valley the last couple of years and had a nice little career for himself, too. But he was just getting bullied by Joey, like, the whole year, first half of the year. And he's a big kid. And, you know, obviously, Joey's probably – five seven maybe five eight and steve's probably like six two and i think joey you know made his whole career on buying space for himself and and probably a little bit of a, a crazy and intimidation factor but uh one day steve just was kind of getting run over and bullied around and i'm like listen steve like sometimes you know you just gotta fight fire with fire like you gotta push back or you're never gonna kind of you're never gonna get over the hump with this guy you know and he's like yeah 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 and i, I thought he was just kind of yesing me and sure enough like later in the practice we're doing like a, a neutral zone game and Steve just absolutely ran Joey over. And I'm in my head. I'm like, initially I'm like, all right, awesome. Like you finally pushed back. And then like quickly after that, I'm like, Oh my God, I just signed like this guy's death warrant here. Like this guy's <laughs> going to die, you know? And so, uh, yeah. So I obviously being an older guy and stuff, I kind of stepped in between and, and I knew Joey was going to, you know, seeing red at that point, the wires had crossed and, we ended up getting into it and, and uh, it was probably the best thing that could have happened to me just to kind of have like an altercation like that before I went off into pro. But, um, you know, normally, especially in college, most of those things die down pretty quickly, but they let us go at it for, for quite a while. Probably if I look back on it, honestly, it was probably like one of the longer fights that I've had in my life. And we went toe to toe there in college and like truly just had a, a good go at it. And, uh, you know, we both had to get cleaned up after and, and then probably two hours later, we were sitting down having dinner together, you know, laughing about it. But uh, those are the memories that I look back on so fondly. And and uh, for me, you know, Joey's a, any, you know, he'd, he'd help anybody and give you the shirt off his back. And, and for those that don't know him, like he was as tough as they, as they come pound for pound. And um, he fought some tough customers in pro too. And, and uh, a guy that I'd always want in my corner. Yeah, for for those of you on the island here that are listening, if the name sounds familiar to you, it should because Joey, uh, he's a Long Beach product. Uh, He played some games in Bridgeport. He went to at least one training camp with the Islanders, I believe, or at least a mini camp. 
Um, and if you ever saw him play, he's that little guy out there that was the uh, guy that was probably bugging everybody. Like I, I kind of equate him to uh, a Kevin Kaminsky type where uh, he doesn't see size and he doesn't see the size of his opponent. He's just going to go at him as uh, like a rabid dog. So uh, if you're familiar with Kevin Kaminsky's game, then you are familiar with the way Joey Diamond played. Do you think that's a safe comparison? Yeah, absolutely. And and we'd always joke about it. Like he always felt that he had more success fighting bigger guys. And um, but it, to your point, I, th- I thought he always kind of crossed, you know, towed that line and sometimes yeah. crossed it. But a guy like that, like he could score too. He could produce offensively. And, and you know, sometimes you got to roll with the punches with players like that. But uh, tough kid and a really good family and, and uh, another guy that I just feel so lucky to have played with. Yeah, and the way the game is going at all levels, I, I believe he's still the all-time leading penalty minute guy at Maine. I don't think that's ever going to get broken. No, I think I bet my house on that at this point. <laughs> I think uh, that, that one's probably set in stone. Yeah. So, uh, so you're a freshman at Maine. Is this your? I guess this is your first experience with the Border War, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I like I said, I didn't really grow up in in that neck of the woods, but uh, you know, obviously, to be a part of it was was pretty pretty special and and um you know you don't really realize how much it means to you know the people of maine and and uh you know the people who have played there until you're a part of it but you know i remember just skating around even in practice like leading up to that weekend it was like you know it was our little michigan versus ohio state kind of thing you know you'd have the the unh music playing during practice and and there really was a hatred and you know, I'll never forget, even we played at Fenway one year, we played UNH, and before the game, the night before, they actually had Maine play UNH in, like, an alumni game, and, you know, a lot of these guys, you know, you go into work on Monday morning, and you're probably, you know, a few pounds overweight, and you're not really taking things too seriously, but we looked out, and at one point, like, these guys are, like, literally slashing, whacking each other, and getting in little scrums, and it was, it was real, and it was kind of like, it kind of put things into perspective that it, you know, maybe there was more to it than, than what we, um, knew it even at the time even being a part of it that that there's a long kind of healthy hatred there and and um and obviously being a part of it was pretty special and and uh you know you don't forget those ones is there i mean obviously with all sports and and we'll just focus on hockey right now because i know there you know i grew up obviously with the islander ranger rivalry and uh you know i'm old enough to remember quebec and montreal and calgary edmonton you know hartford boston uh but there's really even listen i hate to say it right now but i don't even consider there to be real any real rivalries anymore uh in sports uh do you know like since you still seem like you follow it is there still some hatred between maine and new hampshire uh i would say it's cooled off for sure Sure, you know and i think obviously a lot of that is dependent on the style of play and and um you know obviously being a much more skill-driven game now naturally those things are going to kind of take a back seat but um you know i i'd hope that you know both sides i hope that unh hates maine and maine hates unh i think that there's some some healthy competition and, and fire in that and um you know i think it's probably shifted to more bragging rights than than anything else but um you know i i always think that a good rivalry is good for everybody and and uh i hope there's still a little bit, bit of fire burning there well and you talked about um the teams you mentioned some of the teams like BU, BC and hockey East. There's some real legendary teams in that area. And Maine is one of them. Uh, is there a lot of pressure playing for a team like Maine? You know what, for, for a small town, there is like, if you, if you weren't playing well or the team was struggling or 
they were unhappy with the coach. Like they let you know about it. And and that's honestly one of the beautiful things about playing a place like that too, is like people are invested and, and you're kind of the show in town versus if you're playing at Michigan where you have five or six other powerhouse programs within your university or, or BU or BC when you're kind of overshadowed, you know, by the Bruins or Celtics or whatever else is going on that winter. But, um, you know, they're passionate people and, and hardworking people in Maine. And um, I wouldn't say it was so much pressure, to, you know, to be like a Paul Korea or a Montgomery or somebody like that. But they wanted their teams to do well and, and they felt that they had a, you know, that they deserved good teams and, and you can't fault them for that. And, you know, but having said that too, like any home game, you could count on them. You know, like it was a loud building. It was a fun building to play in and, and uh Again, even just having a chance to train with guys that went to other schools in the summer. Like I know that that was kind of a highlight game for them was getting up to go and, and playing at Orono. And, and uh, like I said, it's just a very old school building and cold, cold town. And people would line up, you know, early in the afternoons to get into the game that night. And, and uh, a lot of, like I said, a lot of fond memories and, and uh, a pretty cool program. And your first season there, uh, I see that you were named to the Hockey East Academic Honor Roll. Is that correct? Yeah, I kind of uh, figured out, you know, maybe later in life that, uh, you know, the important side of things, um, you know, academically. But honestly, too, like our assistant coach, his wife, Chrissy Kerluk, at the time was our academic advisor. And she was an absolute saint and, and really put us in a uh, position to succeed. And, um, you know, I think we had a really good group of older guys and, and those teams who kind of, tur- you know, taught us to, to burn the candle at both ends a little bit. And, you know, obviously that we all went to Maine to play hockey, but, you know, you need to take care of the academic side too. And, um, you know, my dad always told me growing up, you'll make more money with a briefcase than you will a hockey stick. And I'm doing everything I can to prove him wrong, but <laughs> I think he might be right. <laughs> now, your your sophomore year, I see that uh, you actually played some right wing as well as defense. Is that correct? I did, yeah, I did. We had kind of a, a, uh, a shortage of, of bodies at, at uh, one point. Um, and, uh, at that point I was still, you know, every night I was just trying to keep my head above water and, and keep myself in the lineup. And even in pro, like I've never, it's been brought up to me a couple of times of playing the wing and I've never turned it down. And, and fortunately I've never had to do it yet, but, um, you know, especially being a, an early player in, in my career there, like I would, I'd play basically anywhere that they told me to. And, um, I thought it kind of helped me, you know, learn that side of the game and, and I'd like to stay in the game after. So it kind of forced me to learn you know, how forwards think and, you know, kind of learn basically, I guess, how to think productively as a, as a you know, a, an offensive player. But um, I also knew that, that I wasn't going out there to score. I was going to go out there and try and bang around and create a little energy and, and try not to get scored on and, and uh, give myself a chance to get back to D the next weekend. Yeah, I would think I would think playing the wing also, um, being a defenseman like you are, stay-at-home defenseman, um, you – you're going to see the ice obviously you grew up playing defense so you're used to watching the forwards but when you actually play it you might see it from that angle and that has to be something that you could take back when you go back on defense absolutely both like both thinking about okay where do i have to put this puck to put that winning winger in a position where he can receive it safely or comfortably and then even just you know thinking about it off the rush like what's this forward thinking you know is he trying to get to the middle is he trying to pull up you know I thought it gave me a little bit different perspective that was healthy and, and um you know I, it probably wasn't something that I would have asked to do but I was happy to do it and, and I thought that I took something away from it so all in all it was a good experience 
Now we move on to your junior year, and I see that you were named an alternate captain. And uh, I really, nothing that you necessarily have to comment on. I just really want to bring it up because the cool thing about doing this show is, obviously, everyone I interview on the show is a physical player, but um, many of these guys, you know, there's always a stereotype for people that are, are idiots and they always say different things about physical players, but it's always great when, when guys like yourself wear letters and, and uh, I don't know if anyone else is noticing the pattern developing, but you seem to wear a letter at every level. And I think that probably says something about your character and leadership abilities. No, I appreciate that, Joe. I, I think um, it's obviously always been something that I've had a huge respect for and never want to, you know, take for granted or take lightly. And uh, I think at the end of the end of the day, you know, it's it's a little cliche, but you know, if I'm talking to a young kid, like whether you're wearing a letter or not, it's just about kind of your daily habits and and how you treat people. And um, you know, obviously, when I was put in that position at school as a junior, it meant a lot you know, a lot to me just because it wasn't maybe the most uh, common situation to put a junior in, in that role. But having said that, like I learned from tremendous guys, you know, at every level in pro and in college and, and in junior, like a lot of guys and coaches really showed me so much that I try to just kind of reflect that on, on others that I, you know, come into, into contact with. And, um, you know, so for basically going from a walk on at school to being a captain there for a couple of years really meant a lot to me. And I, and I think a lot of those qualities kind of go hand in hand, you know, I, I think just getting recognized as a captain was only just because, you know, those habits of trying to be a team first guy and working hard and making sure that I'm showing up every day the best I can for my teammates, you know, allowed me to have success in the first place. So, um, like I said, I, I always think that, you know, whether you're a captain or not, you can always add value to your team and, and be a, a positive impact on guys. And, um, yeah, again, it's just a, a huge honor and, and, uh, it meant a lot to me. Was there someone when you were a freshman, I know like you, we talked about how you and Joey may have, have grown together because you both started as freshmen and you, you were, you know, worked your way up, you know, obviously sophomore, junior, senior, but was there maybe a senior or a junior when you were a freshman that maybe took you under their wing? Yeah, I mean, we had a we had tremendous guidance, to be honest. And, and it wasn't just like, okay, here, here's how you have to play. It was, all right, here's how you're going to handle your academics. Here's how you're going to handle a Saturday night, you know, after a win. Here's how, you know, you need to get ready for a season or, or prepare and practice. And we had a number of guys, um, you know, a guy that I played a lot with was Josh Van Dyke. He played a little bit with Abbotsford afterward. But uh, we had three guys in particular that were kind of old school guys and could handle it hockey wise and and could handle it academically uh jeff dimon tanner house uh mike banwell was a third guy all all those guys played in the american league afterward and and uh we're old school guys guys that you would appreciate that played heavy and and you know enjoyed the social life in town and graduated with good degrees and and truly just found a way to balance everything so well and and uh you know without those guys we probably would have been lost and it's funny right so much of of our hockey community is just kind of repeating what you've learned and, and, you know, so quickly after arriving on campus, we were seniors ourselves and we were just kind of trying to reiterate all those messages that we learned from those guys when we were freshmen. So, um, you know, those guys were invaluable to us and, and uh, really good leadership group. Now this year, this junior season of yours seems to be maybe the most successful of the three years you had spent there so far. Uh, I see that you won a tournament called the Florida College Classic uh, that December, which I guess obviously you're happy that you won, but I guess spending some time in Florida in December isn't a bad thing either. 
Yeah, it was nice. We were actually really fortunate. We went down all four years, and uh, it's actually at the same rink, ironically, that the Florida Everblades play at. Wow. So, yeah, so it was kind of nice to uh, to go down there and, and get out of Maine for a couple, you know, for a week or so. And um, but it was nice to kind of play teams from around other conferences, college hockey too. And um, you know, it was kind of a nice uh, nice escape to get into the warm weather and, and get uh, poolside for a couple days too. But it was obviously it was awesome to just you know, play hockey down there as well. And, and, um, you know, we won some big games down there and it was, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think it's still going on, but those were trips that we had highlighted every year and, and, uh, a lot of fun and good memories. So you had touched on it briefly when we were talking about, uh, UNH, but you did play an outdoor game at Fenway park. So I'm assuming, first of all, that you are probably a Red Sox fan. Uh, but even if you're not, I'm not a Red Sox fan, but, uh, Fenway park, obviously I appreciate the classics and Fen- Fenway Park is absolutely a classic. But uh, could you kind of talk about that whole experience uh, playing a game outdoors and at a place like Fenway Park? Yeah, I mean, for a kid, you know, growing up a big chunk of my childhood in, in the Boston area, it was it was pretty cool. You know, obviously it's it's kind of like the uh, you know the big building and I shouldn't say the big building, yeah. but the most <laughs> you know historical building in, in probably pro baseball and and um, you know for us to to have a chance to play there was so cool for our families too, to, for them to be a part of it. And we actually got to have, we get to use the Red Sox locker room. And, and so, you know, guys are picking out their, their stall. I'm going to be big poppy or I'm going to be Pedro Martinez or whoever. And so obviously we had fun with it. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, we were there to, to play UNH. So they definitely made us aware that, Hey, this is an important game and there's going to be a lot of people watching, but, um, you know, it was a pretty cool atmosphere and, and, uh, at the time you're so focused on hockey that you don't really have a chance to, to soak it all in. But, you know, just looking back through videos and photos and stuff, it's definitely a, an opportunity that was, you know, so unique and a chance uh, for me to, you know, play in a game that I'll probably tell my kids about one day and, um, and hopefully Fenway's still kicking by then. <laughs> uh, it probably will. I mean, it has to be like places like Fenway and Wrigley. I hope they never go away. Exactly. I, I'm with you on that. You know, we have uh, here, you know, the, the new Yankee Stadium, and I'm not a Yankees fan either, but I, I grew up in the old one. And um, the new Yankee Stadium is, is an unbelievable building. It's, uh, it's to me, it, although it's kind of like a, a baseball museum with a baseball field in the middle of it. And I kind of miss the old school Yankee Stadium. I mean, co- if you compare the two, there's no comparison, but I like the old school feel of the old stadium myself. Yeah, I know. I respect that completely. You know, I always kind of picture that or compare that rather to, you know, to my, my college years. Like Maine was like kind of an old school, like Fenway type building. And, you know, we went out and played North Dakota and that's basically an NHL building on a, on a college campus. So there's pros and cons to each, but, um, you know, I think there's something to be, to be said about the history and, you know, nostalgia in those buildings. And, um, you know, I think there are uh, a few relics that I, I hope stick around for a long time. So this season, although it was short-lived, you guys did actually make the NCAA tournament, and I believe that was the first time you made it when you were there, correct? Yeah, that's correct. And, and uh, you know, especially being at a place like Maine, there was such a storied history. So for us to finally kind of get back over that hump and get back was was pretty cool. I think we only played one game, and I think, ironically, I think it was in Worcester um, huh. that year. One of the uh, the regionals was in Worcester, and if I'm not mistaken, I think we lost to Minnesota Duluth. Yes. Um, but, uh, you know, just to get back to that and and uh, to be a part of that again was was pretty cool and um you know college hockey's so crazy right like you win you win a few games in in you know in the ncaa tournament all of a sudden you're playing for like a national championship so you just get hot at the right time you never know what's going to happen and 
obviously that wasn't in the cards as far as then and and uh it hasn't happened since but um you know just to give yourself that that chance kind of was a reflection on your season and um another memory that was uh, pretty special and giving further credence to the sage advice from your father once again you were named to the uh, hockey east all academic team and you were also named a main scholar athlete award winner correct yeah that's correct that's correct i appreciate you sharing it it, yeah. it was uh you know obviously it was a it was a lot of work but but you know to give them credit like they, they did so much on our behalf to you know to help us academically or set up you know tutors or help proctor tests or whatever you know they they definitely uh, we we all knew you know as a team that we we went to maine you know to play hockey we didn't choose to go to school there necessarily but they also made it very clear um you know the coaching staff there that you know we had to take our academics seriously and, and um you know like i never really wanted to give them a reason to you know, to have anything to hold against me. So for me to just get my academics in line uh, was a priority. And, and in hindsight, I'm very you know, grateful for them for that. Yeah, personally for me, I'm always going to bring up the academic aspect, whether it's uh, someone in college or, you know, if someone played major junior and they got uh, scholastic awards, academics have always been very important to me personally. And now that, you know, we were talking earlier before we started recording, I have one son in college, I have one son going to college next year. So uh, academics are of the utmost importance to my wife and I. So I'll always point out that stuff because that's real world stuff. I mean, the hockey stuff, you know, you're very fortunate uh, you know, through your hard work and everything that you're able to make a career out of it. But like your dad said, even, uh, even if you got a little money playing hockey, eventually you're going to need that briefcase. So it's good that, uh, that you, uh, you took it seriously. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think just, you know, in hindsight, looking back on things, it just opens up so many doors for yourselves, whether it's getting into, you know, certain different colleges or, you know, meeting different, you know, alumni or making connections in the business world or, or whatever. I, I, you know, there's so few people and players that get to kind of ride off into the sunset. So if I had any advice for, you know, a kid going into Maine or any other college or even in high school, it's just to, you know, kind of make the most of it and, and uh, you know, just kind of be a constant learner. I, I'm right on board with you on that. So uh, the only teammate so far that I'd asked you about at Maine was uh, Joey Diamond, but uh, I believe a freshman came in during your senior year who I honestly didn't, I didn't know anything about. I'd never heard of him until uh, I believe it was a year ago or two years ago. I see this little guy on Calgary squaring off with a monster named Ross Johnston, and that's Ryan Lomberg. Um, did you see that fight when he fought Ross? I did, yeah, and I was I was praying for him. Obviously, I know Ross pretty well, and <laughs> yeah. and he's as tough as they come. But uh, Lomberg has some some big brass ones on himself. <laughs> so I was, uh, you know, obviously I was optimistic that he'd he'd uh, be okay. But um, I mean, that guy's fearless, and another guy who's got kind of a, a wild path. You know, he's he's got kind of a Joey Diamond type frame. He's probably a little bit bigger, but just kind of in your face and a relentless player, and and obviously can produce offensively too. So. Um, you know, like I said, he's, he's got kind of a, a unique skill set, and, and I think he just got rewarded pretty well with the new contract in Florida with those guys. But, um, you know, they had a really good class that year, a really good group of, of freshmen when we were seniors. And um, and you always kind of saw glimpses of that uh, wild streak in him, but he was also a very good player too. So I'm really happy to see his success. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I don't know much about him, but when I see a guy that size – uh, you know, squaring off with Ross, uh, obviously after the fact, I'm like, you know, like you say, that takes a lot of balls to do something like that. And uh, you kind of give a guy like that credit because there are guys Ross's size that aren't looking to fight him. And then here is Lomberg saying, okay, let's go. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think especially for a guy like that, right? He's, he was at that point maybe even battling a little bit now. It's you're, He's kind of a tweener, right? He's, yeah. he's on the bubble there. And which way is he going to go? And, you know, I think whether I'm a teammate or I'm a, I'm a coach, I'm looking at that and, and I'm loving it just because he's giving himself every opportunity he can to prove, you know, what kind of value he had, he brings to his team and, and what kind of, you know, fearlessness he plays with. And, um, you know, that's kind of always been his MO and, and the fact that he can play too in, in today's game and, and keep up with the pace and, and make plays offensively, I think kind of speaks to his unique skill set. And, um, you know, even in today's game, he's a guy that I'd love to have in my, on my team and rather than play against. And, uh, Again, just really happy for him that he finally kind of has established himself as a as an NHLer. So to put a bow on your career at Maine, I guess uh, my final question would be, uh, how much of an honor is it to actually wear the C for Maine? Because this year, your senior year, you were one of three tri captains. Uh, how much of an honor is that? Yeah, it was it was awesome. You know, it was definitely something that I didn't really anticipate going into that whole journey, right? And uh, so for it to kind of wrap up like that, you know, with a bow, like you said, it, it was a pretty cool experience. And, and uh, you know, to kind of be the last guy, a part of that recruiting class, and then to, to, to go out, you know, being so close to those guys like I was, it was, um, it was you know, truly an honor. And, uh, you know, obviously I keep in touch with those guys every day and, and obviously follow everybody's path who's still playing and, and keep in touch with the guys who aren't. And, um, you know, it's I think at the end of the day, it's just very cool to, to be a part of uh, – the alumni group there of the guys who went through that program and um, you know I'll always look back on it with a, a lot of respect and, and so many fond memories so your college career is over now and you find yourself uh, with the Florida Everblades how did you end up in Florida to be honest I um, you know I, I I think that a lot of it had to do with those Florida tournaments you know just being in, in their backyard there they were able to kind of scout those things and um, I kind of worked through with my agent at the time, different places and what those opportunities look like. And, um, you know, obviously Florida has traditionally done pretty well in that league. It's not a very challenging place to recruit and, uh, they get a lot of good players. So I think it was a chance for me to go down and play a lot of hockey, hoping that they would be able to have a, a nice little playoff run. And, and fortunately that was the case. And, um, you know, those six or eight weeks, whatever it was, was invaluable to me. It really kind of set the tone for what my pro career has become. And, and I learned so much and, uh, you know, I think it was uh, a real eye-opener, but it was also so much fun, too. And it was I knew at that moment that I wanted to kind of chase it as long as I could. And, and uh, I ended up spending, you know, portions of my career there kind of sporadically, but uh, a really good place to play and a good ownership group. So do you remember your first uh, pro fight against Bobby Mignardi of Orlando? Yeah, I do, actually. Uh, <laughs> excuse me. I, I was actually playing with a guy. And this might ring a bell to you, a guy named Brent Henley. Was he was my player. next question. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah. So uh, he basically grabbed me early on and was like, listen, anything you want to do out here is like fair game with me. You know, and uh, in, in that short little window of time there at the end of my college season, like, I, I was kind of thrown right into the fire. And, and uh, I learned so much from, from him on how to be a pro and, and how to kind of handle myself on the ice and, and you know, handle myself physically and, you know, I, at the time, I think Brent and I had the same agent, and uh, he basically—I don't want to say he threw me under the bus, but basically, my first game, we had—I had kind of had a big hit, and I think there was an opportunity for me to kind of respond to it at that point, and and I didn't. And I think deep down, I knew it wasn't like blatant, but I think deep down, I knew that like that was a chance where I probably could have fought and kind of maybe shown that that was something I was willing to do, and 
the next morning I got a call from my agent and I kind of knew where this one was going. He had a lot of tough guys in, in his, on his uh, client list there. And he said, Hey, listen, you know, like I understand that it might not be something that you're used to or maybe necessarily comfortable with, but like, we just got to find out, you know, like you got to find out if it's something you can do or not at pro. And, and that was probably one of only a handful of times in my pro career where I've, you know, I went to, to my nap kind of thinking about it, but, um, you know, uh, sure enough, I was just kind of playing physically, and and a guy went up to me on the face-off and asked me to fight. I don't, I don't think he could have got the words out of his mouth quickly enough. I just said, yep, and I had no idea who he was, and I was just kind of hoping on, you know, hoping for uh, hoping for the best, and, and uh, you know, I, I went in there and, and did pretty well, and I think at that moment, it was kind of like, okay, I can I can hang in here, and, and it's, uh, you know, not something that, um, you know, I should be afraid of or, or um, you know, fearful of. I, I think it was something that's like, hey, who knows, maybe I can add this to my toolbox and and um, add a different element to my game. And that turned out to be the case. And, um, you know, since then, it's been kind of uh, full steam ahead. And I was going to ask you about playing with Henley because going through the junior ranks and then the college ranks, you never played with someone who's, primary job and i'm not saying anything about henley not not being able to play obviously i in my opinion is if you're playing at any level of hockey any where they're paying you for it you can actually play the game no matter what uh you know some people may say but henley was was he the first guy that uh that you played with where maybe his primary job was to be an enforcer i i would imagine so yes yeah for sure you know and, and he made it very clear that listen, I, I want you to play hard and, and basically anything that you want to do out here is fine by me, but it, it was also very clear that he had my back and, and uh, when I was trying to kind of navigate those waters and, and find out not only, you know, what I was made of, but also find out who is who around the league, like that was invaluable and, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough, you know, my whole career where I didn't always have to do the the heavy lifting, but there were some tough tough kids in Florida throughout my time there too. Tyson Gimblet was another guy who was a tough, big, heavy guy and um, could handle his own and um, but yeah I mean if I look back on it and say you know Brent Henley was my first you know partner in pro hockey that's a, a guy that I learned a lot from in a short period of time and um, and he kind of gave me a uh, a master class pretty quickly on the road that I wanted to go down and how I need to play to be successful. Now uh, anyone that follows the league knows there's a lot of comings and goings uh, in the East Coast League. So I don't know if you actually played with him or if you guys overlapped, but uh, a guy who played a few games with the Islanders is Matthew Spiller. Did you play with him in Florida or did you guys not overlap? No, unfortunately we didn't overlap. Okay. Let's see. So uh, going to the next season, did you go to training camp with the Everblades next season? No, I didn't. I actually went um, to training camp with um, the Adirond Adirondack Phantoms at the time, which was Philly's um, affiliate. Uh, guy that I played with in college was Nick Pryor and his dad, Chris Pryor. Obviously, had a uh, had a long, uh, tough career and has done really well for himself. Um, you know, in the business side of hockey and the front office side, and um, so I think you know, in hindsight, I think that was the connection, and that's how I kind of got myself into camp there. But um, it didn't work out, and and obviously, I, that was kind of my I don't want to say assumption. But uh, obviously was sent back to Florida and, you know, took the lessons that I learned in those camps and just kind of like my first taste of a little bit of a American League experience and went back to Florida um, and started the year there. And I think I probably played 10 or 12 games. And then I got an opportunity in Bridgeport for the first time and, um, and I get a chance to play uh, for some main guys up there and, and to play with Joey again. And, and that was kind of um, the first kind of carrot of my pro career to 
get a taste of what that was like and and uh and a great experience as well oh if i would have known that i could have reached out to chris Pryor to get some dirt on you i would have known i would have done that already i didn't know i know i've known chris a long time from his days with uh, springfield so uh, oh, okay, okay. He's, man he's one of the smartest hockey people i've ever met it's it's actually scary how how hockey smart that guy is yeah and i think his resume would would allude to that and, and yeah. um you know I, and truly too like one of the most intimidating guys that you'll come across as well like the first time i met him it looked like he was a, a drill instructor and he was probably in better shape than everybody yeah. on our team so um you know obviously the the a big professional and, and um, I'm happy to see him uh, land on his feet again after everything in Philadelphia and, yeah. and uh, another really good hockey family. Well, you know that his nickname is Sarge, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I think it's uh, probably, probably more fitting even than the wrecking ball. So I think he wins that one. <laughs> yes. And just for the record, I have seen him smile. I know a lot of people say they've never seen him smile. Um, I talked to John Forsland, uh, I interviewed him for the show and we went through a whole list of Springfield guys and, and him and Chris were very close. And he said, you know, it's very difficult to, to get Chris to smile, but I have seen Chris Pryor smile. So just for <laughs> the record. It. Yeah. Um, so you go to your, um, you start out with Florida that year. Uh, you played 32 games. You had 12 points, 57 pims. You only played the 32 games. You were still fifth on the team at penalty minutes. It doesn't seem like. Uh, and it's the exact opposite of when you're in Bridgeport, and we'll touch on that in a moment. It doesn't seem like you had a lot of toughness on that Florida team and uh, that that first full season. So for a guy who only played a, you know, a handful of games the season before and you had Brett Henley uh, the season before, now you're coming in this year, how difficult was that knowing that you didn't necessarily have a lot of guys on there that played physical? You know what, honestly, at the time, it, I, I wasn't even really viewing it that way. You know, I, I was just kind of along for the ride at that point as well, and, and I didn't really have a book on who is who around the league or, um, you know, or at that time knowing that, I, hey, I want to hit X amount of fights or I want to fight this guy or fight that guy. It was just kind of happened organically. And, and um, you know, to get back to your first point, I think, yeah, our team was probably more of a, a skill-based team, but um, there was probably like maybe a, a – team toughness there where it was kind of like everybody kind of stood together versus having like one or two heavyweights and um and we had some good leaders there as well so you know I, I think again it was those six weeks or so whatever it was when I when I went off in the spring there like that that time with Brent Henley and, and some of the other guys that we had there was was so invaluable just because it taught me how to look out for my teammates and look out for myself and and how to add that element to my game and um and after that, I didn't really feel like I needed a, you know, a, a big killer next to me to feel safe on the ice or, or, you know, to protect our teammates or, or change the momentum of anything. And, um, you know, when I got to Bridgeport that year, it was like I was way down at the bottom of the totem pole again. Like that might be a team for the ages on, on team toughness. But, yeah. uh, um, you know, in Florida, in the coast too, like you can buy yourself some space pretty quickly if you make a little bit of a reputation for yourself. And, and I think having the chance to play with uh, – Brent Henley the year prior allowed me to do that. So contrary to what the East Coast League would like you to believe, they actually do fight down there. Now, ECHL always is one that restricts the fight videos. So unfortunately, I've, I saw very little of your fights down there in the East Coast League. So I'm just going to throw some names out at you. I don't know the result of any of these fights, but I figured if I 
hit you with some names maybe they'll jog the memory and if and if they were really nothing then they were nothing but like i said i couldn't really do the the video research because their echl is very protective i guess it's a big secret that you guys actually do fight down there but uh one guy that i saw you fought twice that year and once was in the exhibition uh exhibition season and one was in the regular season with someone named marshall everson uh anything about those fights uh jump out at you yeah, it's funny. I'm kind of laughing at myself here, uh, thinking back on those because you you kind of forget about it over the years. But for whatever reason, we just kind of battled, and and uh, I think later in the year, maybe the next year too, I think I fought his brother as well. And um, you know, I don't I don't know if I can compare it to anything in, in the real world, so to speak, or other pro sports. But some guys just kind of rub you the wrong way, and, yeah. and for whatever reason, there was just kind of like a natural disdain there probably on both sides of things and uh i think he was a college guy as well if i'm not mistaken and um and again like my fights were never really like you know leading into into pregame nap i was thinking about it or even in warm-ups where they were kind of orchestrated or or assigned or whatever like it was kind of just heat of the moment and i probably leaned a little harder on him than i did most guys and and uh it just kind of happened organically but uh i remember actually that's funny you mentioned i do remember playing his brother and I think I shot a puck after the whistle or something like that, and I knew it was him coming in after me, and, and I made sure to try and get the the jump start on that one. But, um, you know, I, again, I don't look back on, on anybody and have any real uh, hatred or, or anger toward anybody, but for whatever reason, that guy uh, and I just were kind of oil and water, and yeah. uh, it just happened. Yeah, that's real life too. I mean, uh, you know, that stuff never goes away, just so you know. There's always going to be people that rub you the wrong way, so uh, so get used to it. So, uh, exactly. so how did you find the adjustment from college to pro? You know, I, I think for me, I always, for whatever reason, always believed that I was going to be a better pro than, than college. I mean, obviously college is, is, uh, is so fast and, and even almost reckless at times. And I, and I thought trying to play to my strengths and slow the game down at times, just using my brain and, and then obviously trying to add a physical element. I thought I always kind of believed in myself that I was going to be more successful or maybe more, appreciated in pro than I was in college or junior and and, uh, and that gave me some confidence too so my transition was was pretty smooth fortunately and and uh, a lot of that was just by having great leaders and, and great coaches but and having like good opportunities too like I've never was in a position where I felt like I was set up to fail like I always went into an opportunity thinking like hey this is a this could be a place where I could earn a spot and play the next two three years you know and, um, and every guy that I came across coaching wise for the most part was like I'm going to coach you whether you're here for the next week or two years too like everybody was really I thought um, you know in my corner for the most part throughout my career and and uh, I think because of that my transition from college to pro was was pretty seamless now how did you end up in Bridgeport that's yeah again it's probably a loaded question but to be honest I think obviously there's a main connection um, you know I think uh, Bob Corkum was still involved with the Islanders and and you still had a lot of uh um, New England guys and, and Maine guys kind of at the helm there at the time. Garth Snow was, was both like a Mount St. Charles and a Maine guy as well. And mm. so I don't know if any of that had any correlation, but um, again, our coach there was Scott Pellerin, who was a Maine guy, and, and Joey was there. So I'm sure that he probably asked him his opinion of me as a player or a guy. And, and, uh, and I was really lucky to get my foot in the door, you know, when I did. And, um, you know, that was kind of a, an up and down season and a roller coaster at times. But when I look back on it like that, that group of guys that we had was, was truly unbelievable and and 
you know, when I when I look back on the teams that I played on and teams that I played against, like I was probably in the bottom half of the team of like team toughness, and and uh, you know I was always willing, but we had some absolute killers on that team, and um, you know, to get back to your point earlier, like these guys weren't just meatheads and and just out there to, to fight everybody, like they really took us under our, our wing and um, and taught us not only how to protect ourselves and and stick up for one another, but also how to be a good pro and how to handle yourself on the road and how to show up to the rank. And, um, you know, that, that, uh, you know, 35 games in Bridgeport ended kind of abruptly for me, but it was really an unbelievable year for me and, and some of the most fun I've had playing hockey. All right. So now we're going to play word association or, or what, you know, what do you think about when I tell you this name? Because like I said, opposite of Florida, this team that you played for in Bridgeport, I mean, the toughness was unbelievable and we're going to save the two big boys for last. I think you know who I'm talking about. We're going to save yeah. those two guys for last. Let's get the skill guy out of the way first because obviously there's a guy here on the island I'm a big fan of. He's a skilled player, but he doesn't mind playing physical. Uh, you played with Anders Lee. What were your impressions of him? To be honest, it's the same. You know, when I saw him at camp recently, it's like he's the same guy then. He's just built like an absolute house, and he can park himself in front of the net, and he's got such touch, you know, kind of in those uh, in that six feet that, you know, he's made a living and, a, and a, an awesome career for himself doing so, but um, truly an unbelievable person too. Like, you know, there's no surprise to me that he's become the captain of, of this organization and um, and I truly couldn't be happier for him. Just salt to the earth guy and, you know, a world-class talent, so I'm happy that he's put all the pieces together for himself. Now, uh, there was a player that played a handful of games there, and I don't think you guys overlap, but I do want to ask you. It's a former guest of mine, and that's Mike Dalhusen. Was he there when you were there? To be honest, I think that probably gave me a, a, an extended stay a little bit. I think my first game with him, he fought uh, somebody in Springfield. I think it was Cody Bass, if yes. I'm not mistaken. Yes, it and, was. Uh, took a took a heavy shot and, yeah. and missed a little bit of time there, and I think that yep. kind of allowed me to to uh, you know to extend my, my time there, but um, but I remember him as a, just a great guy and a, and a tough competitor too, big, strong guy, and and uh, but soft spoken too, and and uh, and a good guy, good locker room guy, and um, I kind of followed his career as he went along as well. Yeah, uh, he's he's still playing actually. Actually, we were uh, we were messaging today, so uh, he just check out his Instagram. He's doing the Movember thing, and he had used to have this big bushy beard, and now he kind of shaved it into the handlebar mustache. It's actually pretty comical. Nice, nice. I'll be sure to check that out. Uh, another guy that only got a handful of games, but uh, I, I believe he had two or three fights, and that's Matthew Gagnon. Yeah, you know what? I actually missed him when I was in Bridgeport, but I caught up with him a couple, uh, maybe the next year, actually. I played in Springfield for a little bit, and he was there. And yeah. He's another guy who's kind of unassuming, right? He's, yeah. he's not a, a huge guy or a huge man, but he's he's stocky and tough, and, and um, but another just a great teammate, like good guy, you know, to spend time with, and, and uh, um and as tough as they come too, you know, like pound for pound, another really tough customer. And, and, uh, you know, again, like you could go down the list on so many of those guys that played there that year, but, uh, obviously he, uh, made a little career for himself in American league for a while as a guy who was willing to play a, a hard and heavy game. Uh, another guy, Scooter Vaughn. Yeah. He's kind of, he's kind of the opposite. Like if, if, uh, Gagnon is short and stocky, you know, Scooter Vaughn is long, long and lanky and, and kind of like this wiry body and like super sneaky tough. We actually fought uh, maybe down a couple years down the, the, the line and uh, he was in Chicago. I was in uh, Charlotte at the time and, 
and I kind of asked him for one after kind of a big hit and, you know, he obliged right away, but, uh, truly like an unbelievable personality so funny in the room and, and really had a good nature about him keeping things light and um but when the wires crossed or when things needed to to be taken care of physically like he was a guy that was willing to do it and, and pretty good at it just like a, a good athlete like i said long limbs and and uh he was willing to hang in there so another tough customer uh andre padan i mean at the time like you saw flashes right like yeah. he could skate he was big he was smooth smart but he didn't really have that mean streak in him and then sure enough a few years later you see him down the line and he's like just absolutely wrecking guys all over the league and you're like you know i'm I'm just so thankful for him that he's been able to piece it all together and and obviously i know he plays overseas now but um you know he was to me he was an nhl player even when he was in bridgeport like you could see all the pieces together i mean all the pieces kind of separately at that point and you were just kind of optimistic and hopeful that he he could put it all together, but truly like a blend of size and skill and, and, uh, you know, the hockey ability was always there from, from a pro potential. But when he finally figured out that he was a killer too, it was like, man, this guy could, uh, could make a nice little career for himself. And obviously he's went back over to, to Russia now, but, um, you know, to me, he was kind of like, a maybe like, uh, Zdorov now who's, who's playing in Colorado last year in Chicago now, like a big tough left handed defenseman and um you know obviously uh he's just uh sneaky tough but you know when he kind of when he let go like when he kind of came out of his shell a little bit and all of a sudden realized he was a man and had man, man strength like he was scary uh speaking of big how about joe finley yeah i mean it's it's actually wild that we're still going down this <laughs> dude i have like team, five but... names left i know i know he's <laughs> Another guy who's just an unbelievable locker room guy. I, I've seen him around different ranks in the, in the years since we played together. But, you know, another guy who's just looks like Man Mountain out there. He's such a huge human being, and he's got the same huge personality. But another guy who would give you the time of day, whether you were coming up on a tryout or you had been sent down from the Islanders, you know, I think that was kind of the common theme amongst those guys was everybody had a mutual respect for each other. And, and uh, another guy that I'm just so glad I didn't have to play against. But, uh at that time, but, uh, you know, was on our, ta- on our team. Uh, one of my favorite guys on this list, and I think it has a lot to do with the, his uh, stature, his size. Uh, and, and I think he, obviously I think he's bigger than Joey, but he's not much bigger. Uh, and that's Chris Bruton. Yeah. Another guy who's, who just found a way to add value, you know, like wasn't necessarily the, you know, the most skilled guy or the toughest guy in the world, but he was a gamer and, and, uh, was an unbelievable leader and teammate. And, um, as tough as they come to like I remember he was he was fighting through some pretty nasty hand injuries at the time too and you know would block a shot with his face and, and fight the next day and and was really truly a team first personality and um you know when you're lining up on and Chris Bruton's your captain and he's on the fourth line and he's got two monsters on either side like you knew whether it was a Sunday afternoon or a Friday night in Springfield that you were gonna have to to win that game the hard way and he was a warrior um, a guy who's carved out a very nice career for himself so far up here on the blue line, and that's Scott Mayfield. Yeah, he was another guy that he was just a, like a big goofball, and he was a young kid and, and still trying to grow into his body. And you realized, obviously now, but at the time, like he had all the school, all the tools, and all the skill in the world 
you know, to, to kind of play the game that he needs to play at the NHL level. Like he had figured it out at that point, even like I'm going to be a simple guy who moves the puck and plays hard. And, um, you know, I think obviously now it's, it's the same way. Like he handles himself well physically when he needs to, and he can add a, a physical element on that blue line and he's willing to, to drop the gloves. But, you know, it's just funny. You, you watch him now and he's a multimillionaire and established <laughs> NHLer. But at the time he was like a little punching bag for, for Justin Johnson and Brett Gallant. And, and he was a 20 year old kid that they were, you know, jokingly picking on at the rink. And uh, he was like everybody's little brother. So for it to, come to uh, fruition and see the success that he's had. It's just another guy that I'm so happy for. All right, we got three more names. Uh, Mike Halmo. He's another guy that, to me, was a game, like just an absolute gamer and, and not a big man either, probably maybe six foot. And uh, I actually remember a story about him. We were playing uh, Hartford run one night, and uh, I think I'd been a little banged up from the night before, and there was a guy kind of running around at me all night, and I really didn't want it. And... Um, for whatever reason, and, and uh, he kind of gave me a shot after whistle, and Helmel came in, kind of guns blazing, and stood in there for me at the time, and and uh, I went up to him after the game and thanked him for it, and he said, hey, listen, like, I wanted the minutes, like, I, I was looking for that fight, so you don't have to thank me for it at all, and, and it was kind of like, you know what, I, I it was a guy that I know was always going to be in my corner, and a guy that I'd always go to bat for myself, but it also kind of made me realize, too, like, you really can't take a night off. Like you have to be willing to do this job every single night. And, and, uh, you know, he got rewarded for that. He played in the NHL and, and is still playing obviously. And, um, just, a, a quiet, unassuming guy from, from a physical standpoint, but another guy who is just a warrior. Now, obviously I saved the, uh, the two monsters for last. I'm not sure. And, and maybe I should have looked it up, but I feel pretty confident in saying, I'm not sure there was a scarier tag team in the league that year. Then Breck Gallant and Justin Johnson. No, I mean, even through like the linesman on a Sunday, I'd be worried about it. Like I got to <laughs> like, deal with these guys coming into town or whatever. But uh, I mean, I'll never forget my first game. We were playing at Springfield and, and uh, we were down probably three or four nothing early on in the second period. And those two guys, I heard them turn around on the bench to, to color it at the time. And they're like, hey, can we go out and blow this game up? And <laughs> at the time, I'm like, I had no idea what they were talking about. But in hindsight, I'm like, you know, that was kind of like these guys were, they were going to make sure that, hey, nothing's for free. You know, like I'd, I'd probably, if I'm Springfield, I'd rather win that game two to one than yeah. five nothing, you know, because <laughs> right. you know you're going to pay for it. And um, But again, just like to go back to kind of the common theme amongst that whole group was like those guys were unbelievable to the young players and, and guys like myself who were trying to find our way and, and learn, you know, that, that side of the game, but also, you know, how to, how to be a pro and, and, um, you know, truly two guys that really went out of their way to help me and, and uh, guys that I, I've seen around the ring since and, and tried my best to keep in touch with and, and guys that I have so much respect for and, and um, you know, guys that kind of get labeled amongst, you know, maybe non-hockey people as, you know, just solely enforcers or, or goons or whatever you guys, or whatever, the, you know, those people want to call them. But, like, to me, organizationally, like, those guys are so invaluable to the young players, not only just protecting them but also showing them the ropes and, showing them how to be good pros and, and, um, you know, obviously both, both were, were rewarded with NHL games. And to me, that's like such an honor for those guys to, to get where they, you know, where they always dreamed of and to get to the pinnacle of their, their sport is, is incredible. And, and, uh, obviously they did it the hard way, but 
they accomplish their dreams and, and I have so much respect for both of those guys. And I think what a lot of people don't realize when they're so quick to throw around labels is um, the majority of their careers were, were spent in the minors. And you're when you're in the minors, and this is something that you can speak on, especially with your stature in, in Worcester, I know you're one of the more popular players. It's it's more than just playing the games. I mean, you're the physical players in the minors are always the fan favorites. I mean, they're the fan favorites in the NHL too, but I think even more so in the minors because a lot of times the physical players are the ones that stick around a little bit because if you're putting up any sort of production in the minors, it's only a matter of time before you get called up where you could be a really tough guy down there and spend the full season down there. And you're always going to be one of the more popular players. So you're always asked to do stuff in the community. You're always asked to be signing autographs on the concourse. Uh, And like I say, you're always the guy with the longest line for autographs. And there's, there's so much more to the role than just the on ice stuff. And I, and I think a lot of times when people want to throw labels around, they don't see the bigger picture. They just see what they see on the highlights. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I, I think back on uh, JJ too, like, you know, some of the funny memories I have, like this guy was a jeopardy whiz, you know, and, yeah. and uh, you know, you look back on it and like people just kind of think, Oh, like these guys are kind of, you know, it's an archaic job and, and kind of, just cavemen running around beating each other up. But it's like, no, these guys brought so much value to a locker room and had such a positive influence on not only the young guys in our locker room and, and the, the locker room as a whole, but in the community. And, you know, I think that that's not uh, a coincidence why, you know, Gallant is still playing and, and possibly finds work for himself in, in an industry that's hard to do now. Like the fighting's down, but he's always kept a job, right? And mm-hmm. I think there's a reason for that. Like he adds value to a locker room, but he's good in the community. He's good for the organization and, and uh, a great insurance policy to have in your lineup when, when you need it too. But, um, you know, both those guys were, were like equally, you know, great human beings to tough hockey players. And, um, you know, they really did a lot for me in a short period of time. And, and I'll always be thankful to those guys and, um, you know, truly just some of the best guys you'll meet in the game and, and truly some of the toughest guys, you know, I've ever seen play. Uh, do you remember your first AHL game uh, against Springfield? Yeah, it was all downhill from there, actually. You know, uh, <laughs> I think we, uh, you know, like I was just talking about, I think we were down three or four to nothing, and, and uh, I think we ended up losing uh, five to two. And, um, you know, I joked that it's all downhill from there. It was like my claim to fame. I had a couple assists, and I was plus two in a, in a five to two loss. But I think I had my first fight, too, and I think yep. that's probably what, that what's, uh, you know, gave me a chance to keep going with those guys rather than, a couple points for sure but um you know anytime i kind of get called up to a new team or you know assigned here or traded there or whatever my wife always knows not to watch because i always end up in a fight of some sort but uh to me it's just like the easiest way to kind of make an impact as quickly as you can and um i remember there being a scrum in front of the net and, and it was pretty clear to me what kind of team we had in bridgeport and what kind of guys they valued so it gave me uh, an opportunity to try and bring that same element and uh, I think it was a guy, Daryl Boyce. Who yep. Had, obviously had a nice career for himself too, and played the NHL, and, and uh, you know was willing to do that kind of game and or play that kind of game, and, and um, you know we kind of had a quick spirited fight, but I think that kind of gave me a little bit of a, a leg to stand on with the with the coaching staff there, and and um, you know that was it was a kind of selfishly was like a huge moment for me, and and um, probably a memory I'll never forget, and and uh, obviously. Oh, that guy would be here if I ever run into him again. <laughs> well, you got to tell your wife not to focus on the fight. You got to tell her, look, I was only a goal away from the Gordie Howe hat trick. 
Yeah, exactly. You know, both my parents were at the game too, and I think my mom has probably stormed out of a dozen or so rinks, of, you know, after fights and went the, the wrong way or so on me. But, you know, she knows how much I love it, and, and I wouldn't trade this job for anything. So, um, you know, for me to keep playing, it's something that I embrace, and uh, she's learned to uh, turn the other way on it a couple times. So, um, I like we discussed earlier, I'm always going to point out the academics. And another thing I always like to point out are the goals. Uh, do you remember your first professional goal? I wasn't sure because you scored with Florida and you scored with Bridgeport this season, but I couldn't tell which team it was with. Do you remember your first pro goal? Yeah, I had my first pro goal in Florida, I think, before I got called up to Bridgeport. And that was probably, um, you know, a dozen or so games that I had spent in Florida before I got uh, sent to, or called up to Bridgeport. But um, I think we were playing Orlando. I couldn't tell you who the goalie was or exactly what the situation was. But then I, I do remember my first American League goal. I think we were uh, playing on the playing at home in Bridgeport, and um, I think we was ironically I think I was out on the ice with Gallant and JJ at the time. Another guy, uh, a little kind of water book forward, Matt Lowry, I believe his name was, who's another maritime guy, like, kind of sneaky tough, and um, just kind of caught a rolling puck and. I think the hockey gods were looking out for me and found the back of the net and it was a huge kind of relief, but a cool moment to share with those guys who had really went out of their way to help me out and, and kind of go to bat for me with the coaching staff there. And I think I was riding high there for a couple of days after that and uh, definitely didn't make my career as a, as a goal scorer in the American <laughs> league, but it was a, a fun moment and I still have the puck kicking around here somewhere. Very nice. Now the next season, I think you want to talk about moving around this next season was uh, you did a lot of that and i think i have i think i nailed it i think i have it in the order that everything happened so you you just have to either confirm or you know help me out with this so your season started you went to training camp with st john's ice caps correct correct okay and uh, how'd you end up there uh, well, I, I basically, I'd signed in Bridgeport the year prior, and at the end of the year, I basically had become a free agent, and um, I knew there wasn't going to be an opportunity to go back there, so I was kind of sniffing around for an opportunity where there's a chance to earn a job out of camp, and um, we were speaking with Craig Heisinger at the time, and that seemed to be the best opportunity to do so, and um, obviously, it didn't kind of... Uh, Turned into that after training camp, but I think I was there after, you know, maybe eight or ten games in Florida. I got I got called up there and um, and um, just another unbelievable hockey town and great group of guys and some tough customers on that team as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, you didn't make the team out of camp and you went down to Florida, correct? Correct. Okay. And then after a few games of Florida, you signed a PTO at Springfield. Yes, you're right. Yeah, you, you're right. So I forgot about that. <laughs> and yeah, you probably. I mean, now you can see my uh, even my family. They don't remember what number I am. Time, but yeah, I went to Springfield, and then uh, now wait, uh, I, you went to Springfield and you played one game, if I'm mistake, if I'm correct, and you had one assist. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly so you not. you got a point in your game, and they still sent you back to Florida after one game. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was uh against Bridgeport and. Um, you know, there was a chance, there was a time later in the game too where you'll have to check the box score, but it was a heavy game. Like Gallant fought a kid on our team. Um, there was a fight with like a couple seconds left. Halmo grabbed a guy and, and uh, like you knew it was coming and, and that was a a tough team, yeah. you know, to play against. And, and fortunately I uh, was just trying to cash in on some of those friendships that I still had there. But um <laughs> Yeah, I was only there for a weekend, and it was kind of a, a unique situation. They brought in another guy at the same time as me, 
um, with a lot of NHL experience, and and I so I knew kind of going into it that it was going to be a a short term uh, trip. But uh, I ended up going back there later in the year, mm-hmm. funnily enough, and uh, you know was able to extend uh, my time there a little bit longer. So your next stop after Florida, you went back to St. John's. Yeah, so I went uh, back. I got released in Springfield, went back to Florida, played probably a weekend, and then I went to St. John's um, and was there probably the next 15 or so games. Um, so obviously, uh, if people are, are listeners to the show, you played with a guy that I just had on, and that was Blair Riley. Yeah, yeah. I caught some of the episode, and uh, another guy just – you know, willing to do whatever it took to, to make his, his name in pro hockey and, and uh, has had a nice career for himself. And, uh, but honestly too, just, you know, like you, I'm sure experienced firsthand, just such a good human being as well. And, and really went out of his way to make me feel comfortable. And, and, uh, you know, was a, was a strong voice in the locker room and a good player too. And, um, you know, I've got a lot of respect for the way that his career has went. And you played for a coach in St. John's that uh, was a physical player himself during his career, physical defenseman, if I'm not mistaken, and that was Keith McCambridge. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, no, I see him around the rinks time to time. I'm really scouting for uh, somebody now, and um, and even up until recently, he was coaching in Hartford as well. And and so it's always nice to kind of see those guys. You know, obviously, I wasn't there for long in either St. John's or Springfield, but you, you do form a relationship and kind of a trust with those guys. And, um and obviously at the time, like your number one focus is to try and do everything you can to kind of make them happy and, and allow your you know team to have success and have individual success. So for no matter how short the, the trip was, you're, you're trying your best to, uh, you know, to, to maximize the, the return for everybody and, and uh, everybody wants the same goal. So, um, but yeah, to kind of get back to it, he was a, obviously a tough customer there. And, you know, Jason Jaffer was the captain, probably one of the, the great American League captains that um, admire anyway, and we had some toughness too. JC Lippon was another guy who yep. was pound for pound, and like a, a Lomberg type, like real scrappy, would fight anybody, but could play offensively too. And um, so uh, we had a good group of guys there, and truly a special hockey, hockey town. So even when I get sent back to Worcester now, I'm kind of like, oh, maybe we can get a St. John's trip in there, and it'll be <laughs> worth it. Now. Um... And we'll get into your hitting because I, I have several questions about that. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit later. But a lot of your fights stem from big hits that you lay on people and then their teammates come to their defense. But this, this uh, during your time at St. John's, you actually had a fight with someone who, if people aren't familiar with the player, they're familiar with his father. And that's uh, Jared Tenorti, who almost killed one of your teammates. I think it was John Albert with a hit. Do you remember that hit? And do you remember the fight after? Yeah, I do. I remember it, and actually, I, I keep in touch a little bit here when I see him. You know, playing against him or stuff on the road or whatever in John Albert, and and I always get kind of a chuckle at it. And uh, you know, I remember he came up to me after the fight, you know, in the locker room after the game, and just kind of thanked me for it. And I was like, you know, hey, listen, no, no problem. You would do the same for me. And he kind of laughed, and he's like, no, I wouldn't. You know, and I was kind of like, you know, you're probably smarter between us. You know, I think I might have been the last guy to touch the puck prior to him getting hit, and at that point you don't really process the odds of you having success in that fight. You just try and do whatever you can to stand up for your teammate, you know, good, bad, or indifferent. And, you know, I, I definitely bit off more than I could chew at that one. And, um, but I probably wouldn't change it for, you know, my, my reaction for, for anything, you know, I I think that that's allowed me to kind of stay in the game a little bit is, is, 
being reliable and being willing and and uh you know i tip my cap that's a you know a big tough customer in, in tenority there and, and obviously he uh he bullied me on that one but um you know i'm uh, i was just glad that i had teammates that were worth standing up for and and uh, i wouldn't change it hey man that's why you were a letter everywhere you go and uh you know, like you say, you don't even think about it. It's just instinct. And I think it was Jeremy Yablonski said, if you're not losing fights, you're not fighting the right guys. So, uh, I like yeah, I so my little trademark. there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, Tenorti's a big dude. I mean, he gets it from his father. And like I said, I don't even think the fight was much of anything, but that hit, I mean, Jesus, I, I, I guess sometimes it's better. It seems like with the bigger hits, you don't have time to brace yourself. And, uh, I think the uh, the chance of injury is lessened, but that I mean uh, the visual of it was just uh, an amazing hit. Yeah, I just remember being so loud, like it was just such a, a violent, like it was almost a car crash. Yeah. You know, it was just like running into a brick wall, speeding down the road. But uh, I mean, obviously, he's had a nice career for himself too with Tenorti, and, yeah. and um, Albert was a was a real skilled player for us. And you know, in that situation, you don't think you just go for it. And um, you know, again, I probably bit off more than I could chew, but. Um, I didn't take too much damage and the, the minds, the, uh, memories, you know, is funny to think back on. So I'll get now after St. John's, I believe you went right back to Springfield. I did. Correct. Okay. And you played for another coach there who was a physical player and has actually made a wonderful career for himself behind the bench. And that's Jared Bednar. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he obviously was a, was a long pro himself and, yep. um, you know, I think that we had played each other so many times in the year prior that they kind of gave me another look. And, um, you know, there was um, obviously uh, an identity in Springfield, too, that they were looking for, you know, the same kind of uh, element that I brought in, in Bridgeport. And in hindsight, to be honest, I, I think that I kind of had a little bit of um, maybe like role kind of disillusion almost. You know, like I went from a guy who wasn't really even playing power play in college and all of a sudden I was playing power play a little bit in Bridgeport and then in St. John's and when I got to Springfield, you know, they just wanted me to play the same way, just to play hard and play physically and, you know, I think at, at the time I had kind of lost my way a little bit and um, you know, again, I've been looking back it's 2020, but there was a good opportunity there and obviously they went out to uh, Cleveland and won a championship there and the rest is history, but um, you know, they had uh really good group of guys as well and a, and a good coaching staff and, and I'm not surprised at all to see him where he is today and um, you know but again for me selfishly it was another great place to stop and and uh, you know being in Springfield was you know close enough for my parents to come check out games and and um, you know just more kind of more ways for me to kind of build my my brand a little bit and I'm always thankful for that. Now you made your penalty minutes count. You had 16 penalty minutes, and 10 of those were from uh, two fights. Uh, you had a fight with Sean O'Donnell, not that Sean O'Donnell for uh, the older listeners like myself, and uh, Bobby Farnham. Do you remember those fights? Yeah, I actually played with Sean O'Donnell prior. Uh, the younger Sean O'Donnell, probably yeah. a, a younger and less tougher uh, yeah. lefty as well, but uh, but a tough kid. I actually played with him uh, in Florida right out of school, and I remember him having a few fights and, and being a tough kid and. Uh, um, but just kind of a lanky, you know, left-handed, uh, you know, long body, tough, you know, competitor. And I think I actually had spoken to, I kind of had a similar talk as, as uh, Blair Riley did with Bednar, you know, prior to the game. And he just said, Hey, listen, here's kind of, you don't have to do it every night, but you have to be a, a tough kid to play against every single day. Mm -hmm. so you don't have to fight every night, but you have to, you know, nothing's for free kind of thing. And so Sean kind of gave me a little shot and, and we kind of went at it and, and, uh, 
at that point, it was like, you know, when I, I kind of learned my lesson a little bit from Bednar there, and I was just willing to go kind of trade it blow for blow with that one. And, and fortunately, it wasn't, uh, you know, like a long, big heavyweight fight, but uh, I think we both had a little bit of damage in that one. And um, I think the other one is, you said Bobby Farnham is another yeah. guy that I know from this area. and. Mm a guy that I have so much respect for too. Like he came out of a school and was willing to do truly whatever it took to, to get where he wanted to go. And, and he got there. I mean, he played in the NHL and was an NHL for, you know, an extended period of time. And, um, and a guy who really, you know, did everything he could to, to get there and, and to fight anybody, you know, win, lose, or draw. And, um, it was kind of the same situation. Fortunately for me, like most of my fights just kind of happened organically. And there was the same situation with Bobby there. And, and, uh, you know, we still had a couple of uh, laughs on it, you know, when I see him in the summer times or whatnot. But, um, you know, he's a good player and a guy that I have so much respect for. So the next stop on your tour, your minor league hockey tour of 2014-15 was uh, Charlotte Checkers. You played 18 games for them. Uh, a couple of guys I wanted to ask you about. And uh, there's no, there aren't going to be any more guys I want to ask you about like that one Bridgeport team. But two guys on this team I was, uh, I'd be curious to know your thoughts on were Ben Holmstrom and Kyle Hagel. Yeah, absolutely. I actually uh, had my first pro camp with Ben Holmstrom and, and, uh, and obviously got to know him again, uh, you know, in Bridgeport years later and, and uh, got to know his brother Josh as well. And, um, again, just good people. But, uh, you know, I remember playing against both the brothers in, in college and then obviously Ben in pro, like, he was exactly as built. He was, a you know, a great leader, you know, a warrior you know, himself and a guy who laid it on the line every night and whether he was playing on the first line or playing, you know, on the fourth line and playing penalty kill, he, he found a way to, you know, to be a, an impact guy. And, and, you know, obviously, you know, you talk about leadership. I mean, he was probably a second year pro wearing a letter, if not the C, you know, in, uh, in Philadelphia's, you know, American league system. And, um, you know, obviously he uh, had a great, really good career and, and loves the game. I think he's still playing overseas. So, you tip your cap to a guy like that, and um, and Kyle Hagel too is he's been tremendous. You know, if I were to list my favorite teammates on on one hand, he'd be he'd be right up there at the top. And um, you know, he's a guy that kind of like JJ that we spoke about earlier. You know, he's an he's an Ivy League grad. He's scary smart, and he's super well read. You know, you talk about academics, like he would. You know, we'd go on the road, and guys would be going out for lunch or something, and you know, hang around the you know, the restaurant for a couple hours after, after lunch. And we'd walk by a coffee shop and Hagel would be in there reading a, you know, reading a book and um, just completely goes against the grain of what you'd expect of like this big, you know, combat kind of hockey player, but um, truly such a good professional was so good to the young guys and, and now is uh, coaching himself. But he's another guy that I spent a lot of time with working after practice, trying to find different ways to, you know, tactically give myself the best advantage of being a smaller guy on how to not only, you know, defend myself, but also trying to be proactive and finding holes and different grips and whatnot. And um, he's just a real student of the game and, and truly so tough too. like, he did all the heavy lifting on that team that year and he fought big, you know, big, big boys. I mean, that, that year in Charlotte, we were in the West, you know, so we had San Diego had Bickle and McGrath and then you had, you know, in Ontario, they had, you know, Paul Bissonnette, and they had Chris Newberry, and they had other tough guys, Scott Zabrin. Um, so really kind of spread around that conference. There was still a, a lot of heavy lifting for him to do, and, um, 
you know, I can't tell you there was enough of us that were really thankful that he was on our team, you know, not only as a teammate, but as a guy who looked out for everybody in that organization. So he's coaching now in Seattle in the Western League, and we always joke together that we'll uh, coach together one day too, but um, truly one of the, the best guys we've ever played with. And another guy that was on that team, well, part of the organization that I wonder if he helped you uh, along the way a little bit, was a guy who played a very similar role uh, that you do uh, back when he played, and that was Jordy Kinnear, who was an assistant coach. Yeah, and, and this is uh, kind of funny, you know, right after Hagel, if I say Hagel is probably the best teammate that I ever had, Jordy Kinnear is far and away the best coach that I ever had. And, and uh, I mean, obviously I know that his background is a – as a player speaks for itself and, and they call him, you know, champ for a reason. Yeah. But for me, he was so far and away uh, or far and above, the, you know, the most detailed coach that I had played for, but he always, you know, found a way to leave you so motivated. And, um, you know, he took a, a ton of time both years in Charlotte there for me that when he really didn't have to. And, and I remember him, you know, like it was yesterday saying, you know, listen, I don't know if you'll ever get your opportunity or not, but I'm going to, you know, I'm not teaching you to survive here at the American League level. Like, I'm teaching you to feel confident going against Ovechkin, you know, and, and that, for a young guy who's trying to find his way and, and establish himself at that level, like, it gives you a little bit of uh, confidence and momentum. And, and for me, he just pointed out so many little details in the game, and, and I constantly felt like he had my back, not only as a player, but as a guy who played probably similarly, or I hope to have played similarly. Yeah. the way that he did and um you know I, I wish i had more of a chance to to play for him now in his in his head coaching career but he's another guy that uh if i ever had the opportunity to work with him in any capacity i'd, I'd run through a wall for that guy and and um by far and away the, the you know the the most professional and and the best coach that i've ever had and and uh i only wish i had more time with him I think a lot of the guys that go through the Devils organization, especially uh, back when he was uh, going through there with Albany and stuff like that, with the the way that Lula Marilla always has things structured, uh, it's no surprise that a guy a guy like uh, Jordy is as successful as he is, and and uh, he takes the time to teach because. Uh, you know, some people don't necessarily like the way the Devils played back in the day, you know, when they were winning cups. But even before that, um, and, and you're seeing it now with the Islander organization, the way Lou Lamarillo structures everything, uh, a guy like Jordy Kinnear was well coached when he was there and he picks up certain things. And uh, he played on some very tough teams there as well, but he always got uh, a regular shift. So he can see everything from from numerous avenues where he could see how you play tough, see how you know how it is to be a defensive defenseman. So it's no surprise that someone like that is so successful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll, I'll remember it as, as clear as day and as long as I live. You know, he said to me, listen, I played, oh, you know, in the OHL, I played major junior, but I've got a master's degree in defense from the New Jersey Devils yeah. School of, you know, defensemen. And and I laughed about it at the time, but then, if you, you know, you go back through it and think about the defensemen that they've had, the coaches that they've had, and, and obviously Limarello at the helm, you, you know, it's it's no joke. It's it's exactly as described and, and advertised. And, again, I just thought that Jordy was such a good teacher, such a good motivator, and, you know, he always said, listen, I'm not looking for mistakes, I'm looking for trends. So it's like he wasn't a guy that he was going to berate you or necessarily – you know, critique you for no reason or one error. Like he made it very clear that games of, you know, the games of a game of mistakes, but at the same time, let's try and make you as efficient as possible. And, and, uh, you know, like I said, I, I wish I had a chance to play for him, you know, more as my career and along, but it's been fun to follow him along, uh, you know, in, in his head coaching roles. And, and, uh, he's a guy that I'd love to, 
you know, work with again someday. So anybody that, that uh, plays a physical style and drops the gloves, um, it's sort of like um, a dichotomy where you don't want to ever hurt somebody in a fight, but you also want to get that like highlight knockout or that highlight, you know, whatever it is that you call where people are going to go, whoa. And, and I think out of all the fights I watched, this season, I think you had that one when you fought a guy from Grand Rapids named Landon Ferraro. Do you remember that one? I do. I do. And and like you said, you, like obviously none of us want anybody to get hurt. We're kind of in the same fraternity. And um, and sometimes you're the hammer and sometimes you're the nail, right? Yeah. But, um, you know, it's kind of funny. Like I remember clear as day working with Hagel on a couple different things. And especially being a shorter guy, like when I try and, you know, get a little if I get a little too excited and I try and just trade punches or, or hold a guy out like I'm gonna lose that fight all the time like I'm not long enough and I'm not you know tall enough to, to do so so I gotta stay tight and you know he was just kind of working on me with with different stuff after just kind of shorter punches and and um, again I'm sure I've been hit with them from other guys too but it's like sometimes you just connect and it's almost like uh, you know hitting the sweet spot for a home run or something like that you know it's almost like you feel like you didn't even get a piece of it but sure enough it was it just kind of went as he did and um, you know he's a he's a tough kid on on the other side of things and I was actually playing uh, Chris Bruton was on the team too in Grand Rapids at the same time so I was kind of looking over my shoulder the rest of the weekend thinking I'm gonna have to pay that one back but uh, um, you know fortunately it just kind of ended as it was and he was okay and um, but uh, one that uh, will stick with me for sure. Now, we talked about a uh, fight you had um, <clears throat> against Jared Tenorti, and that was the result of a Tenorti hit on one of your teammates. And one of the things I alluded to earlier is your style of play and how you are a wrecking ball and you hit guys out there. Now, I think for people that don't realize it, it's more than just running into a guy. I think for people that don't really know the game or whatever, there's an art to hitting. Um, when did you, was there someone that taught you? how to hit was it like on the job training uh when did you really start focusing on that you know what it's funny i I don't know if it's ever necessarily been a a focus of mine i think it's just you know kind of happened naturally and um when i was kind of growing up in the in the boston area like you could hit as as soon as hockey began um and then i kind of alluded to it earlier that we moved around a little bit and you know we moved out to the midwest for a couple years and you couldn't hit there and i had been hitting for a few years and um and felt you know adequate at it and felt that I could do it safely but have an impact on the game and um you know so when you have a couple (laughs) unsuspecting midwestern guys and I'm coming from an area where I've been hitting for a few years like you you start to get the timing down and you start to realize like you can you know you can bring a physical element to the game even when you're young and um and I think after that it was just kind of in my toolbox and I just tried to run with it but uh you know obviously the the older you get and the the higher you climb like it's, it's harder because you don't want to you know leave your your team or your partner exposed if you if you miss but it's still uh i still think there's a, a place in the game for it and you know you got to kind of pick your spots and you have to be a, a little bit more aware now more than ever with having as many camera angles as there are that you're not going to catch you know catch somebody in a vulnerable spot but um you know i think it's always been a part of my game and, and something that uh that I like to do, but also something that I have to do to make sure that I'm adding value when I'm not, you know, putting up points or running a power play. And there was a game against Oklahoma City. Uh, you crushed Andrew Miller 
And then um, Mitch Morose came to, uh, I guess, uh, make you pay the bill. And uh, you guys actually fought before the puck was dropped. Do you remember that whole sequence of events? Yeah, I just, you know, it's funny. We were just talking about Jordy Kinnear. I remember him coming to the back of the bus after the game asking me, you know, what the heck happened out there and seeing if they could kind of rescind the, you know, the misconduct to it. So I, I think, you know, I think I don't remember what time of the game it was, but there was, you know, potential like implications down the line for the next game or something like that. But, you know, I think it was a situation where he got kind of, you know, kicked over the bench there and, and he knew what he had to do. And I was kind of suspecting it too. And I think it was just a, a situation where, you're just ready to do it, and I don't think either one of us knew that the puck hadn't even dropped yet. But sure enough, um, you know, it just kind of just kind of happened, and uh, you know, he kind of had a name for himself out there too. And I know Andrew Miller was one of their better players, and I figured it was it was somebody coming. So uh, at that point, you're like, let's just get this thing over with and uh, and move on. But uh, I think at the time, I know I heard him on, uh, I heard you mention him on podcast with Blair Riley there the past week and I think Jerry Fleming was running the bench on the other side there okay. obviously bigger than everybody on the team so yeah. I figured he'd, uh, somebody would be coming over at that point and uh, it was nice to have somebody kind of in a similar weight class that's for sure yeah I mean I can go on and on about Jerry Fleming I, I mean I'm a huge fan of his I have him on my uh, minor league enforcer around uh, Mount Rushmore so uh, he was a he was a monster he was a monster that's for sure yeah, no doubt <clears throat> Uh, one other fight that I want to ask you about was uh, one you had against Reed Petrick, and uh, that was actually a fight. Um, you know, if you're noticing a theme here with uh, with Mike, uh, you came in to defend a teammate, and a lot of people on social media might know Zach Boychuk because he's got a, a million followers, or he follows everybody. He's got a ton of followers on social media, and this was a fight you had when you jumped in to defend him. Do you remember that? I do, yeah, and actually, uh, he's a he's a hilarious guy, and and um, I'm sure probably most of your listeners have interacted with him in some capacity on on Twitter or social media. But I should tell him, I you know all these deals that he's got through uh, through Twitter. There, I should try and cash in on one of those, and I'll send him over the clip and say, "Hey, remember this time that I stood up for you?" But <laughs> but uh, no, again, I mean, especially being who he was, you know, an NHL caliber player and a first round pick, like. For me, that's a no-brainer every time, every day of the week, and uh, I don't exactly remember how the hit went, and but I kind of remember the fight there, and um, you know, I think that was my first stint with Charlotte too at the end of the season, and uh, you know, especially at that point, I'm trying to let these guys know that I'm willing to do whatever it takes to be a part of you know their organization and want to be a part of it for the long haul. So for me, that was a no-brainer, and um, you know, do that one uh, ten out of ten times. And then after that, you headed back to Florida for the playoffs. You had played 12 games, you had four points, 32 penalty minutes. And and I got to tell you, you know, this is one thing a lot of people have asked me because, uh, you know, they they say things about uh, – uh, they ask me questions because some of the guys I have on, not everyone, especially people that only follow the NHL, they're not familiar with everybody. And this is, this is really – uh, a reason, one of the reasons why, uh, I mean, I've been following minor, minor league hockey since uh, the mid to late 80s. And um, it, part of the reason why I, it's a passion for me is the respect I have. I mean, we just went over the season that you had where you're playing in so many different cities. You're not getting rich off it, that's for sure. But you're doing it, you know, for your family because you love the game and everything. And it's just the amount of respect I have for players like yourself where you, you're doing all this stuff and all these cities that you played in. I mean, it really is, it really is something to be admired. I mean, it's, I mean, obviously the goal is to make the NHL, 
NHL. And the goal is to make as, as much money as possible. Um, and it's way more comfortable to be flying uh, charter to different cities, first class, whatever, in the staying in the finest hotels. But, you know, this season that you had where you're going, you know, city to city, man, I mean, you get, you really, for what it's worth anyway, uh, I have so much respect for you uh, any season, but especially that season as I was going over it. Um, you know, like I said, I, I just want to say how much I respect that your journey in general, but specifically that season, because it couldn't have been easy. Yeah, no, I appreciate, you know, your sentiments on that. And, and you know what, I, I always joke, like it's, as crazy as it sounds, like it's it's easy for me. It's hard on my family when when uh, you know they don't know exactly where I'm going to be, or you know, at that time I was newly married too, and and um, you know, my wife sees me bouncing around place to place, and she's trying to keep track of me, and we're trying to get our our life going. But at the same time, you know, everybody who it's hard on, they've been so supportive over the seasons of of letting me kind of chase my dream and and doing what I love. And you know, I said it a second ago, but it to me it really isn't hard because it's what I love to do. And, you know, I've always told myself that I want to do it as long as I can, as, as long as I love it. And to this day, whether, you know, you play well the night before or, or whatever happens on the ice, like I haven't had a day where I'm not looking forward to going to the rink the next day yet. And, um, you know, obviously priorities change a little bit as you get older and I've got a family now. And, um, as you may have heard of my, my screaming little guy a couple minutes ago, but, um, <laughs> Truly, I, I feel so fortunate to, to get to do what I do and, um, you know, everything, practice days, you know, riding the bus, playing cards with the guys, and just sharing so much time bonding and, and learning guys' different backgrounds and, and hearing about different parts of the world. Like, I, I really do feel so fortunate for it, and, um, you know, I, I don't feel like I've, I've worked yet, you know, so I feel really lucky for that. Well, that's something that uh, Blair said now that he's uh, he's quit playing. And I said, how's retirement? And he goes, I, you know, talking about working a regular job now. He's like, oh, I'm finally working now. He's like, this is tough, you know. And yeah. uh, so, you know, take it from one of your ex-teammates. But, yeah, but, I mean, like I said, I've really been – the my, whole minor league lifestyle has, has really intrigued me. I've been fortunate enough to make a lot of friends uh, that have played minor league hockey that I, I'm still friends with to this day. My best friend in the world played a lot of years in the minors. And uh, just like I said, to me, it's it's something that – from a fan's point of view um, is more way more intriguing than, than even the NHL lifestyle. Obviously the NHL is the big time and everything, but the journey that you guys do down in the minors, it's, it's something that it has always been fascinating to me. And uh, you know, I think when, when you have a season, like you had this past season that we discussed, it just needs to be brought out to, so people kind of understand it. Like if you talk about, if I, if I work my job and then a month from now I'm going to a different city and a month from now I'm going to a different city for a weekend and then I'm coming back here. And like you say, you, you know, you just started having your, you just got married, you're starting your family. So uh, it, it's just, and like you say, I, I know you said that, uh, you know, you love it and it's, it's this and that, but you know, it's just something that I think you deserve some credit for. No, I really appreciate that, Joe. <laughs> So we go to the next season, and you and this was a little easier. You only split the season with Florida and Charlotte. Yeah, I started the first uh, again. I, all those years, like I, I would kind of start. Uh, I basically signed a contract in the off season with Florida, and I'd go down there and play, you know, ten, twelve games, and inevitably there'd be injuries or or maybe guys weren't, um, you know, performing or teams were a little thin or whatever, and it would create a hole and. Fortunately, at this point, I was going back to a place that I was familiar with, and um, it was a new coach the second time around in Charlotte, but basically the same core group of guys, and, and um, 
you know, we just spoke about it, about the, the bonds, you know, that you have on a team, but that was probably the best group of guys that I've ever played with. And, um, that second year and another chance, you know, to learn under Jordy Kinnear and, um, and then Mark Morris was our coach there. I thought we probably, uh, outperformed maybe the talent that we had on our roster, but we had so much fun in the process and, and such a good group of guys as well. Now, I'm glad you said that because obviously, like like I said, I only have the limited footage. I didn't. I was never able to watch any of the games, but I saw most of your fights from that year, and a lot of times there's some video before and after the fights. I, I kind of got the impression just from, uh, call it body language, call it your facial expressions, whatever, um, and not that you're ever comfortable in a spot because obviously the season before is a perfect example of you not ever getting comfortable. I kind of got the impression that this 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 season for you in Charlotte, uh, you finally felt like there was a place for you there, like you were in a place for an extended time. And I and like I said, I can just tell on the ice it finally again not to say comfortable in your position but just comfortable and and I think you might have just answered it with what you said for that second year but am I reading that correctly yeah absolutely and I, and I think uh you know honestly I think you hit the nail on the head with that I think you know obviously the more games you can play and kind of string together with one group kind of uh gives you a little bit of confidence and, and makes you feel like you're you're part of the team and and not just kind of along for the ride and um you know like I said from top to bottom it wasn't like one power play guy is more respect than a guy who's, you know, blocking shots or fighting. It was, it was very much like everyone's kind of pulling the same rope together here. And, and, uh, you know, I alluded to it earlier, like we, we were on the East coast, but we're playing in the Western division. So we spent so much time on the road together and so much time in hotels and buses that it really was a, a close group. And, you know, I think by that point I had kind of built some trust and some equity with the, the coaching staff there and, you know, like I said, Jordy Kinnear has had such an impact on my, not only my, my hockey career, but how I view the game and as a person and, um, and even kind of try and live my life a little bit. But the more I was able to get comfortable with him and, and kind of buy into everything that he was, you know, teaching me. And, and then all of a sudden it, it starts to translate into games and it's like, okay, I've got some confidence that I'm doing what he's asking of me and, and I can just play and, and kind of go up instinct and, and not be overthinking things. And, um, and obviously then, you know, the, the fighting side of it just kind of would take care of itself by just playing, trying to play hard and, and stick together. And, um, you know, that was one of the things they always kind of harped on was, you know, one goes, we all go kind of thing. And, it, you know, it was kind of like a pack mentality. And, and um, you know, we didn't have the toughest team in the world, but we had a group of guys that really liked to play with each other. And, um, and it was a really special year and, and a fun group to be a part of. Now, there were a couple of fights this year I want to ask you about. Uh, a lot of your fights that I watched, it was kind of grab on with the left and chuck them with the right. But you had a fight against Trevor Cheek, uh, San Antonio, uh, where you threw a lot of lefts. Are you comfortable uh, throwing with both hands? Obviously, a guy's always going to be predominant one or the other, but uh, are you are you comfortable throwing the lefts as well? Uh, I would say like comfortable enough to get by. Like I, I wouldn't say that it's something where I would, I would try and square up with a guy and just trade lefts, you know, power for power kind of thing. But mm-hmm. if I'm in a in a jam, I'll try and buy myself a little bit of time or something, but, um, more often than not, it was just kind of like a reactionary thing rather than, a you know, a strategy per se. But, uh, um, I do remember the fight though. And I, I don't, I don't exactly remember how it happened. We kind of got spun around a little bit and, um, you know, it was just kind of another quick spirited fight, but, um, um, yeah, I guess to answer your question, I, I wouldn't say that I, really would want to go power for power, you know, but uh, all of a sudden when you're 
fighting guys with start throwing lefts at you, I learned pretty quickly that you're going to have to have a plan B. Yeah. And one other guy that you fought that year was uh, Patrice Cormier of Manitoba. Were you guys teammates with St. John's? Did you overlap? Yeah, we were actually. And he's an, another awesome guy. I've really been, uh, you know, fortunate to get a chance to play with him. And, and he was the same way when I played with him, you know, like hard and soul kind of guy and could play up and down the lineup and, and a real, uh, you know, passionate team guy. And, um, you know, I remember, I think we were playing in Manitoba at the time and we were losing and kind of ran me a couple times and I just, you know, kind of had had enough. And, uh, but he's a guy that I would, I could see after the game and, you know, go give him a hug or something and say, you know, I appreciate you doing that for me kind of thing. And, um, you know, again, I think that's kind of, uh, been a common denominator with a lot of the guys that I've, you know, went to, to battle with and against. And, um, you know, I think like we were talking about earlier, it was certainly a, fraternity of guys that that are willing to play hard and and find a way to leave whatever happens on the ice and and uh sometimes you're asking for it and sometimes you oblige but at the end of the day i think you know everybody just wants to to, you know to do whatever they can to help their team and make sure that uh, nobody gets too banged up in the process now it's ironic that you know i had asked you about being comfortable in charlotte and everything like that and now the next season not only are you not in Charlotte, you're not even in North America anymore. You end up in the German Elite League with Straubing. How did that end? How did that happen? Yeah, it was it was a crazy story. Actually, I uh, obviously had I had I known that Jordy would get a you know a coaching job, especially in Springfield, I probably would have held on as long as I could and, and begged him for a job all summer. But um, basically, I was playing on the road. And the team Straubing was was out on a scouting trip, and uh, a guy that I had played with previously, another just unbelievable guy, Jamie Cyphers, was in the stands, and he had had some prior dealings with the GM of the team in Germany, and um, my name got brought up somehow, and I saw Jamie after the game, and he gave me a business card from the guys in, in Germany, and said, "Hey, you know, reach out, uh, kind of whenever you can," sort of thing, and we had been eliminated in Charlotte, and I went back to Florida for playoffs, and they kind of you know, gave me their pitch a little bit and uh, they basically said, hey, you've got 48 hours to decide yes or no on this offer. And, um, you know, I did as much digging as I could and as much homework as I could and, and try to talk to as many people as possible without, you know, sort of tipping my hand. And, uh, you know, I knew that there wasn't going to be room to return in Charlotte the following season. And, um, you know, I kind of took a gamble and it was an unbelievable life experience. And, uh, in hindsight, I probably would have waited another couple of years, but you know, like you said earlier, that's life, and you got to roll with the punches. And um, you know, I'm sure when hockey's all said and done, I'll just remember you know the the life experience that it was, and not so much the uh, you know the on ice factor. Well, speaking of the on ice factor, you're playing for a team in the German Elite League, but when I looked at the roster, it looked like the majority of the team was North American players. Yeah, it was funny. You know, we had a Canadian GM, we had a Canadian coach. Um, and basically the, the team that I was in, it was um, a smaller town. So they did a really nice job of finding guys who, you know, who had German descent, even though, you know, they were born in the U.S. or Canada. And so I'd say we probably had, you know, we had 10 or 11 imports. And then we probably had another six or seven guys who, uh, you know, were basically fake Germans, if you will. They had, <laughs> they had a German passport and, and uh, played in the U.S. prior. So it really was like playing at home and, Obviously, you don't know the language, but everything else, you know, every day uh, at the rink was all English, and the only German I really had to speak was in town, and you knew enough to get by, or at least you could fake it long enough for them to convert back to English. So, um, 
it was a great experience though like some of the some of the facilities and you know arenas around the league were were incredible and just to travel the world and and see a different uh you know style and pace of life was was pretty neat and um some tough customers over there too as well um some big boys and, and guys who you know did it the hard way over here before going over but um I don't know if you've ever had the experience to, to get over there or even just watch some of the games from from that league, but it's uh it's a little different the way it's almost like a soccer game and you know the way they kind of chant through the whole thing and um it was a pretty cool uh, experience to say the least. Well, I've never been there. Uh, hopefully, one day I get there. It'd be the four years of high school German that I took. I could put some of that to use. But uh, yeah, there you go. But I, you know, I've spoken to some guys you know like Blair who've played over in in Europe and. Uh, you know, he, he used the same analogy as you did with some of the hockey there. It's like a soccer game. Um, you, you did have 117 minutes in penalties in 49 games. So, uh, how was the style there? Was it similar to North America? Did you end up scrapping with anybody? I did. Um, so basically how it was when I was there, I don't know if the rules have changed at all, but I think it was like three fights and then you got suspended for a game. So you definitely had to be mindful to pick your, your spots. But having said that, there were still guys, you know, that were willing you know, to, uh, you know, to play that way. You know, I remember some of the names. Uh, I had a fight with Steve Pinizzato, who got me pretty good. There was a guy on our team who got ran over, and a teammate of mine both kind of looked at each other on the bench, like, who's going to take this one kind of thing as the, as the guy's hobbling off the ice back toward us. And um, that player I'm talking about was Colton Jobke, really, you know, pound for pound, like a really undercover, sneaky, tough kid. And um, I just happened to change, you know, ahead of him somehow. And, um kind of re- went uh, right up to Pinizzato and he just drilled me like right away and it was it was fighting an uphill battle after that but uh, obviously a tough kid and then uh, Cody Lample was another guy who was playing over there at the time who, who fought a bit back here um, it's definitely uh, Chris Newberry was in the league for a little while and so they've had some guys that, that go over and, and try and play the same way but um, Having said that, like it's definitely officiated significantly differently than it is here, and, and I think um, I'd probably say that imports are especially kind of on a short leash with you know the the extracurricular yeah. stuff, if you will, and um, so I think they knew what they were getting when I was brought over, but I think it's also like a fine line that over here sometimes you cross the line and they kind of look the other way, and over there if you cross the line, it's like you hear about it. So. Yeah. Um, but again, all in all, it was a good experience, and and uh, I was, you know, still thankful for the opportunity they gave me to go over. So uh, the next season, you're back in North America, uh, back on the East Coast. How did you end up back with Bridgeport slash Worcester? Yeah, so I knew coming back that you know it, it's tough. Once you go over, it's hard to come back, and so I knew. Um, obviously, I was re- really familiar with the coaching staff uh, in Bridgeport, and. Um, Obviously, at that time, Worcester was an expansion team, and I knew basically, if, you know, if I were to be sent down from Bridgeport at any point, that Worcester was going to be in my backyard, and uh, it would be a chance for me to live at home and continue playing and, um, you know, doing what I love to do. And, and so that was kind of a – that was the process. You know, the other option would have been to, you know, just sign an ECHL deal and, and try and bet on myself and, and uh, kind of end up anywhere. But obviously, at that point in my life, I was starting a family, and – um, trying to, to balance both, you know, my job and my family life was a, was kind of a balancing act. But having said that, I, I've been with them for the last three seasons. And, um, you know, you, you talk about the, the Lamarillos and how well they take care of their own and, and uh, what kind of organization 
they run and what kind of people they are. They've been great to me since, you know, since day one. And um, I feel like I found a little bit of a home, you know, between the two cities now. It's not, and, and there are a lot worse situations. Obviously, like we say, the goal is the NHL, but for someone that has to go up and down between the American league and the coast, I mean, you're, you're a Massachusetts guy and you're playing between Bridgeport and Worcester. So it's not like you got one team on one coast, one team on the other coast. So I guess in the grand scheme of things, it's not entirely a, a bad situation. It's actually a pretty good one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even there's been times where, you know, I'll take a morning skate in Bridgeport at, you know, 10 a.m. And then they'll let me know after the, after the pregame skate, hey, listen, you're not playing tonight. Like, let's get you down to Worcester to play tonight. So, you know, it's, it's not uh, – it's not necessarily what you ever want to hear, you know, but having said that, it gives me a chance to play games when, you know, instead of just sticking around and getting bag skated or something like that, or just kind of moping around my hotel, you know, it keeps me fresh. And I think whenever I go back to Bridgeport, I'm kind of better off for it just from, you know, not uh, just practicing for a couple of weeks. It's like you can go down and play real minutes and, and every opportunity, you know, in different situations. And, um, I think both the organizations have done well for each other um, and by each other in doing so. Now, um, so you're signed, I guess you're signed the two ways, right? Uh, between Bridgeport and Worcester, correct? No, I've signed, I've been fortunate to have been on one way contracts. So financially there's no implications if I, um, you know, get sent down or, or recalled. It's more of uh, you know, obviously just trying to chase what I want to chase and play at the highest level I can. Um, but I am fortunate that they've been very good to me that way where I've been on a one-way contract. Oh, great. So I was leading into an, act, an actual question uh, if you're on two-way, three-way. Uh, so when you came back, were you able to go to training camp with the Islanders? I did it my first year. I did my second year, um, which was awesome, especially knowing so many of the guys from my, you know, my first year in Bridgeport. You know, it was cool to kind of see those guys. You know, for me, it was just a – it was kind of a, another chapter in my book, but it was – it was kind of cool to see those guys when I knew them as, you know, young minor league players. And all of a sudden these guys are established NHLers and, and they have a voice in the room and it's not like they're just, you know, another guy, like they're, they're, you know, pillars in their organization. And to see them five years later was, was a pretty cool experience. And um, again, I'm, I, I feel really fortunate to, to say that I played alongside those guys, but I'm also just so happy for them that they've been able to, you know, reach the, the levels of success that they have. And, and uh, you know, it's funny, even now watching, whether it's in the bubble or during the year or whatever, I, I just thought it was uh, a really cool opportunity to, to watch those guys, you know, continue to succeed. And, and obviously, uh, when you're not in it, you're, you're still rooting as a fan. And, and uh, obviously, really cool to see the run that they had in the, in the spring. And, and, you know, you're optimistic that they can make another push here um, shortly. So, the that season 17 18 uh the majority of your games were played in worcester and that was uh i guess your first experience with a former guest here that i i loved to death i loved him before i had him on the show and since i've had him on the show he sounds like such a great kid and and he has to be and you've played with a lot of guys but i would have to think that yannick turcott is one of the biggest characters you've ever played with for sure he's just you know, I think that, that word describes him perfectly. He's just a character. Like, I don't think I've ever seen him have a bad day. You know, he's always happy to go to the rink, and he's, he works as hard as anybody I've, I've come across, to be honest. And, um, you know, I think you look at a guy like him who's who's doing so much of the heavy lifting around the league, and uh, I think the fact that fighting is going in the, you know, the wrong direction for a guy like that, but he's still 
is getting contracts speaks to, you know, A, how committed he is to it, and B, how valued he is in the organization. And I know the, you know, the other organization thinks so highly of him. And, uh, you know, he's a guy that I really think if he can kind of put all his pieces together and figure out how to maximize his potential, I think that he could surprise some people. And, um, you know, he's as willing and as tough as anybody, you know, in either league today. And, um, you know, I, I think, uh, like, again, if he puts it all together, he could surprise some people. The impression I get just from the couple hour conversation, a couple hours conversation I had with him is he has this like youthful exuberance about him. Like he just, he's just a, a, a kid, like a little kid in a man's body that probably all you guys have to be on your toes when he's in the room. For sure. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, you nailed that uh, character assessment there. I, you know, he's, he's, when you really think about it, he's, I think this is his fourth year pro coming up, but I think he only is, you know, 23, 24 years old. So you kind of forget that, that he is so much younger than I am uh, sometimes. But having said that, it's great because he, you know, he's this big, you know, tough kid, but at the same time, he's, he's like a teddy bear in the locker room too. So I think he's got a perfect balance of not getting too high or too low in between his, you know, his fights or his game in general. And, um, but again, like he'll be the first guy to, you know, to, to joke around in the locker room or throw his music on. And um, I, I certainly think he keeps things light, but at the same time, he's a, he's a good pro too. Like he, he does everything he can to take care of his body. And, you know, he studies video and he watches other fighters and, and he's checking all the boxes as far as doing what he can to, to buy himself some success. So I'm a big fan of his, I'm in his corner for sure. And, and uh, I know that there's a lot of people kind of betting on him as well. Now I know one thing I didn't know about him uh, that he talked talked to me about was that he's an aspiring DJ. So uh, what what about his taste in music? Is it questionable? You know what? I, I got to admit that that's maybe that's the age gap. I haven't been to any of his uh, <laughs> famous uh, apartment concerts yet. But I've okay. Got two little kids that uh, I don't think my wife would let me sign off on that one. But uh, <laughs> I know that uh, he thinks pretty highly of himself on it. So I'll have to give him a hard time next time I talk to him about it. But he, uh, you know, what? I, I give him credit. Like he's found another passion outside of hockey. And, yep. and you know, especially for a guy who does a job like that, where it could be really mentally taxing. I think it's a great outlet for him. And, and uh, you know, you know, firsthand from the conversations and the relationships that you have that, when you're going down for a nap or you're trying to go to sleep the night before a game and you have to fight like a, you know, a Grattan or Trevor Gillies or whoever, even in the ECHL, like that weighs heavily on guys. And if you can get a little bit of a, an escape for, you know, half an hour of your day and you can make music or paint or whatever else you have, go, you know, have going on, I think it's a, it's certainly a healthy habit. And, um, you know, I'll be the first one to, to give him a hard time about it, but at the same time, I'm happy that he's doing it. Now, you also spent 12 games in Bridgeport that year, and you played with someone who we alluded to earlier, and it's a guy that, uh, you know, just like you said with Yannick, that, you know, these guys, that, that their primary job is to be an enforcer and the way the game is going. Um, there's, there isn't a player in any league right now that does that, that primary function that still can't play the game. And one of those guys is Ross Johnston, and, and seeing the way that he's grown from from his time, you know, his earliest times in Bridgeport to what he's doing now in, in the NHL, uh, where I would say if if you're ranking the guys, I'd say in my opinion, um, if you say Ryan Reeves is a champ, if you, if you got to give him that because he has more experience, uh, I don't think there's anyone 
at number two other than Ross Johnston. And you saw Ross as, as a young man, and I'm sure you keep tabs on him now. So what are your opinions on Ross? Well, I think, first of all, I agree with, with your uh, assessment there. But I also think that he's just an unbelievable person, too. Like, I think he comes from, you know, a hardworking background, and that kind of gave him his work, work ethic and, and probably some of that farm boy strength that he has. But, you know, he's, he's a, a larger-than-life human being. And, and, you know, obviously I don't have a ton of experience with him. But just yeah. from, you know, dinners and, and being around the rink with him, you know, I, I just think he's, he's a very genuine person. And, and what you see is what you get. And, whether he's playing for the Islanders or anybody else, like he'll do anything for any, any guy in that room or on the ice or whatever. And, um, but he's scary tough, you know, like he's another guy where I think it's, it's kind of like that next wave of, of tough players where, you know, you can get up and down the ice and you can make plays and the next minute you can, you can hurt somebody. And, and I think when you have a skill blend like that, like I don't really think there's many guys in the league that are as intimidating and, and can also play the game like he can. And, um, you know, I think sometimes that gets lost in the shuffles and you know what, like majority of the nights now, the way the NHL and, and minor league hockey is going, like you might not have a fight. So you have to be able to survive five on five and, and not give up chances against and maybe work yourself onto the PK or penalty kill and, um, and add value that way. So I tip my cap. I know he's spent a, a ton of time working on his game, you know, not just the, the physical side of it, but when those wires cross or, you know, he decides to, that he needs to fight, like. He's a, he's a scary guy, and, and he's got these big bear paws on him, and I'm, I'm just glad that I've never been on the uh, receiving end of him. <laughs> the other guy you played with in Bridgeport, and I, I'm sure you played against him uh, during his time in Albany, was Seth Helgeson. Yeah, yeah, he's another guy that I think we both came into the league the same year, and, um, you know, I knew that he was a physical player, and, and uh, you know, he definitely had a presence about him even when he was young, but you know, I think he's still that way today. Like, it's kind of like you don't poke the bear kind of guy. Like, he'll – I think if I was playing against him, I would just want to let him sleep. You know, he's another guy when the wires cross, he can really snap and, and uh, he'll let you know. But another guy who's just a consummate professional and, and obviously has, you know, proved his weight in gold to the New Jersey and the Islanders and the Lamarillos in general. And, and I think he's been a good soldier for them for so many years. And, and I, I know that they uh, think really highly of him. And um, – I have to assume that he'll be in the, you know, in the conversation to be a captain in Bridgeport next season. And, and uh, another guy who really does such a nice job with the, with the rookies of giving him a hard time when he needs to, but also going to dinner with them and, and, you know, showing them the ropes and and pulling them along as well. So I can't speak highly enough of him and and, uh, just another unbelievable teammate. Now uh, being a defenseman, uh, have you, did you get to work a lot with, uh, and actually today's his birthday. We're recording this on election day. Today's his birthday. And that's Matt Carpenter. Did you get to work with him a lot? Yeah. Especially this past season. I, I feel like, I, you know, I got to know him a little bit better and, and just being around more consistently. You, you know, he's another guy who's really went out of his way to work on different things with me and, and, you know, took the time to you know show me extra video or stick around after practice. Or if I wasn't in a lineup last night, you know, that night, maybe he could work on a couple, you know, things that he recommended or saw, you know, differently than I did. And, um, you know, obviously I, I knew of his playing background and, and the type, the type of game that he played, but the way that he coaches has to be the same way, you know, like we always feel like he's got our, our back and we'll do anything he can to help us succeed. And, and whether he got the credit for the PK or whatever else he was running that night, like we always felt like he was, you know, a team first guy and, and, uh, 
you know, I think he's got a, a bright future ahead of him, and, and uh, you know, I try and learn as much as I can from him. And, of course, the head coach, Brent Thompson, um, you know, Blair Riley, I spoke to him about, uh, about Brent, and he, had, he spoke very glowingly of him. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes people look at the standings and they equate working with prospects and depending on how you are in the standings. But I know that, that Brent Thompson uh, works very well with, uh, with the younger players. What are your thoughts on Brent? Yeah, I mean, he's a kind of another larger-than-life personality. You know, he's like this, got this big booming voice, and he's got hands. You can tell what he did for, you know, as a, as a hockey player. You know, he's a, he's a big, intimidating presence. But having said that, too, like, I think he's phenomenal one-on-one having conversations. You know, hey, how you doing? What's going on? Here's what I liked about your game. Here's what we need to work on. You know, kind of taking the time to, to let you know where you stand. And, and that's, I think, all players can ask for is just, you know, being – transparent with the situation and, and getting a black and white response. I think he does a nice job of that. And, you know, maybe to, to back him up a little bit, you know, I, I think that the American league is such a hard league to, to coach. And it's like, it's so hard to blend winning with development. And, and obviously there's probably a handful of organizations that have been able to figure it out. Um, but having said that, there's going to be times where you have to put young players in situations where maybe they get exposed, but, yeah, maybe it costs you a game, but if they can learn from that and then, you know, it helps them on the island in a season or two, like you have to you have to recognize that that's a win for, for the big club and, and that's ultimately the goal of the American League now. You know, there's so few teams that are playing for a championship. Um, you know, I think the teams that focus on development and they also prioritize winning, it's it's a unique culture and it's a, it's a hard thing to do. Um, but having said that, you know, I think that Brent's, dealt with a lot of different lineups and a lot of different prospects and and um you know there's nobody that cares more than that guy and um you know i'm happy to hear that he's back again there next year now you had two fights with bridgeport uh that season one i saw uh they're both against providence i saw one of them adam payroll i didn't see the one against colton hargrove i don't know if uh if you remember that one yeah i think he kind of had a, a like a borderline hit on me in the corner and then I think the next face off we had fought and I think it was it was less about the fight versus I think we were down a couple goals at the time and it was a quick fight um you know I don't I don't exactly remember which way it went but um I don't remember it being anything uh you know spectacular e- either way but mm-hmm. um and obviously the one with uh peril there it was just a same thing I think it was the first shift of the game and you know, try to get involved physically and, and kind of clip the guy a little bit. And obviously I knew he would be a guy who would stand right up for me. I had a couple battles with him when he was in Milwaukee and I was in Charlotte. So I knew that he'd probably be coming over, but he's a big, strong boy. And I just tried to let him get tired before uh, he opened up too much. So uh, we already alluded to the fact that the following season, you were able to go to training camp with the Islanders. Um, did you get into any rookie games there? No, they, they only, uh, I didn't play any rookie games, obviously being the age that I was, um, but then just in the big club, I didn't play any uh, preseason games either. They kind of sent us down, um, you know, the first wave of, of American League players, but, you know, like I alluded to, just being able to see those guys again and, and um, you know, kind of be a part of Ray Trotz's first uh, training camp there was, was something that I'll always remember, you know, really well and, um just an invaluable experience to see some of those guys and how they've been able to establish themselves and, um, and just kind of develop a, another level of familiarity and confidence in the organization was, was huge for me. And, um, you know, it's definitely something that I'm proud of. 
So the first season back with Worcester, you wear the alternate captain's A. Second season back in the 1819, you played the majority of your time down in Worcester. Uh, second season back, you get the captain C. So again, it's nothing necessarily that you have to comment on. Uh, but again, I just like to point out to people that, uh, you know, there's a reason why it seems like every organization you're with for any sort of period of time, you're getting a letter on your sweater. And like you say, you don't necessarily have to uh, wear a letter to be a leader. But I just want to point out again that, you know, once again, an organization um, that has you there, I mean, right off the bat, you're wearing the alternate A and now you're wearing the captain C. It's just, you know, again, I guess it's just a credit to you that that uh, all these teams are seeing the same thing in terms of your leadership abilities. It's either that or I'm just getting old and they just assume <laughs> that I'm a good guy. Well, <laughs> so either way, I'll, I'll take it. But uh, no, I appreciate you sharing that. And, um, you know, again, it's not something that I, take lightly or for granted but it's always a uh, kind of a nice feather in your cap when when somebody sees you in that light well and it's funny terry ryan who i'm sure you're familiar with uh he has gone on record as saying wearing a, a letter in the minors is like a curse it's kind of like well do they not think i'm gonna go anywhere or you know i guess the c is worse than the a uh but you can speak on that like do you feel like uh, you know is there any validity to that in terms of well you're wearing the captaincy does that mean that I'm going to be here most of the time and maybe I'm not going to get a chance up in Bridgeport. Do, do you feel that way? You know, I think there is some validity to that. And I think probably even more so in the American league, you know, if you're, if you're the captain in the American league, it's probably a little bit tougher to go up and play, you know, on a, you know, get back to the NHL, uh, you know, a guy that I trained with every day and played with last year, Colin McDonald. I think he did it yeah. with Bridgeport and then was a captain there and got called up and, and played the rest of the year you know, on the island. And I think that's, that's probably pretty rare, but, um, you know, like my third year, uh, when I had been sent to Worcester at the start of the year, um, they, I was, I was back to wearing an A and that was something that they had mentioned was just, listen, we wanted to have some stability and, and with you kind of coming and going, it didn't make sense to kind of have a, a new captain every other week or every other month or something. So you definitely, you know, start to think about it a little bit because, you know, if I'm coaching a team, I'd like my captain to be there most of the time. And um, so I think if you're reading between the lines as a minor league player um, and you're not exactly where you're hoping to be, I can see where it's a, a little bit of a predicament. Now, uh, this year in Worcester, you had a really, you had a great season. I think you set career highs in all categories, including penalty minutes, 172 penalty minutes, also five goals, 30 points. So, and that's in 60 games. Uh, and again, your game is not all about the numbers, but I just again want to point out that this was a really great season for you. And uh, the two-headed monster of uh, Turcotte and Cornell was actually joined by uh, a, a third part, now a three-headed monster, and that's Ross Olson. What can you tell me about Ross? Yeah, he's another guy that I think honestly could surprise some people. Like he's a he's a big kid, he's mobile, and um, you know he gets around the ice wall. He's got a you know a good touch around the net and. And he's willing to, and I think honestly that's half the battle, you know, even just to, to develop a bit of a reputation is, you know, you don't always have to fight a Yannick Turcotte or a Brett Collant or something, you know, if you're kind of like a, a middleweight guy and all of a sudden you can, you can have a bunch of fights and naturally you're just going to, you know, climb the ladder in that regard. And um, he's another guy that, that plays a hard style of hockey and he's willing to do whatever it takes. And um, for me, he's a guy that, you know, should earn a call up here the longer he continues to play and, um, and he'll have done it the hard way and, and earned it. So I'm, I'm hopeful that he gets that chance. And he's a fellow Massachusetts boy too, right? Exactly. So I definitely have to pull for him. 
Now you don't have you don't have the accent that I uh, you know, I'm obviously I knew you didn't by watching some of the stuff on YouTube. Uh, does he have the Massachusetts accent? You know what he doesn't. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, which is funny, but um, it, it seems like it's either one way or the other. It's it's you're kind of a no accent, or your accent's like so distinct that anybody <laughs> in the world can figure out where you're from. So I think we're both uh, safe in that regard, but. Um, yeah, I think he passes the test on that one too. <laughs> now, in the third to last game, uh, you playing Maine, and you were hit by uh, Bryson Martin at the final horn, and it almost led to a full scale brawl. Do you remember the situation there? Yeah, I'll have an elephant's memory on that one for as long as I, I'm playing. Obviously, I wasn't thrilled with the way that that happened, and um, you know, obviously, it's in the past, and I I don't want to say anything that's going to get anybody in trouble, but. Sure. Um, it was definitely a moment that uh, I thought was uncalled for and, and uh, could have been handled differently. And, um, you know, I think in a lot of regards, I probably would have done things differently too. But, um, you know, that's, again, that's the way things happen sometimes is it's just heat of the moment. And, um, again, I, I think uh, we all probably would have liked to things happen differently. But at the end of the day, you know, he kind of did his time and, um, nobody got hurt out of it and we all kind of lived to, to fight another day. So it's kind of water under the bridge. And uh, again, sometimes you're the hammer and sometimes you're the nail. And, and that's the, the beautiful part of this game. Uh, well, the reason why I was asking about it is because I had read about it, but I didn't see any video on it. Did he board you? What did he do? Basically the game had expired and uh, we were behind their net kind of as the horn went. And uh, I basically had the puck on my stick and kind of went bent down to pick it up and he basically just boarded me from behind like into the glass after the game had ended and at that point it was just kind of a melee but I guess in, in his defense I didn't realize it at the time but there it was their goalie's first win I, I guess and he probably just came from junior college or something and um you know I don't know what my reasoning was for at the time for picking it up. I can I can say with a clear conscience. I didn't know it was the guy's first win. I would have left it there or whatever. But, um, you know, again, I, I think he was probably trying to do what he thought was right for his his goalie. And, um, you know, I've seen the video, and it's, it's pretty nasty. Yeah. But it's the ECHL, and, and not to knock them, but I think a three-game suspension in ECHL is probably like 15 in the NHL. So, um it's the way it goes. And, and again, I've been on the wrong side of things too, where I've, you know, had hits or slashes or whatever that I probably would have uh, liked to have done differently. And, and that's just the way it goes sometimes. And, and that season you played four games of Bridgeport. You had one fight against Joseph Labatt of Belleville. Do you remember that one? Yeah, I think he uh, ran over Kiefer Bellows. who's another really good kid and, and um, obviously a big prospect for the Islanders. And um, for me, that's kind of a, a fight that I have to take and I knew he was a tough kid I actually gave him a, a visit when he was at Maine and he ended up going to Wisconsin so I promise that's not why we fought but uh, <laughs> um, but I know that he plays a heavy game he's a big strong kid and and it was kind of a quick fight too but um, I know uh, that he's kind of done things the hard way there in, in both Utica and Belleville and um, you know he's kind of made a nice little career for himself as a third fourth liner there as well so that brings up brings us to the this past season, 2019-20, and I want to thank you for all the time that you've given me today. I really appreciate it. Um, split the season, uh, Worcester and Bridgeport again. You played 25 games for Bridgeport this season, so that's always good to see. 
Um, with Worcester, you had uh, 18 games, 33 penalty minutes. Uh, the only fight that I see you had, and I didn't obviously see the video, was against someone named Kelly Summers of Adirondack. Now, just doing the research when I when I was re- doing the research for uh, Yannick's interview and doing the research for here, there's a pretty good rivalry between Worcester and Adirondack, isn't there? There is, for sure. And I, I think just, you know, financially and geographically, you know, the nature of BCHL is you're going to play so many, you know, close close, close games. And, um, you know, I think it's only a few hours away. So it's a day trip for both teams. And uh, so there's definitely no love lost there. And, and uh, they've got a pretty, you know, a lively bunch there in, in uh, Adirondack. And they've got a pretty good fan base there that, you know, lets you know that, um, you know, you're in for one every night. And, and I think just naturally things over the years have become a little hot style and I'd honestly say like if there was ever a minor league rivalry you know that's got to be up there for ones that I've been a part of it's just you know every time you play each other it's going to be a war and um, there's no love lost there for sure yeah when I asked Yannick if I was if I should go see a game in Worcester or wait till you guys play in Adirondack he said I'll go to Adirondack it's wild it is wild (laughs) you know I mean I've I've literally seen guys screaming back and forth in the middle of the game with fans and (laughs) you know it's just like it's it's quintessential ECHL, you know. It's kind of what you'd expect. And um, and having said that, like I, I truly believe that the ECHL is like an undercover, pretty good league now. And, yeah. and uh, you know, there's a lot of teams that are using it properly as a developmental um, league, and and you have good players in there. But there's also times where, you know, you have one referee, and you've got crazy fans, and you've got uh, you know a, a beer sale, and it's just a deadly combination. <laughs> No. So you had, uh, like I said, 25 games of Bridgeport. You had four fights. I, I've only seen one fight from this past year. That was against uh, Jordy Bellreve. Uh, but you also fought uh, Corey Conacher of Syracuse, Tommy Cross of Springfield, and Jamie Devan of Wilkes-Barre. Uh, any of those fights uh, noteworthy for any reason? Uh, well, I think the Conacher fight, I think he'd, he'd probably like to have that one back. I don't think he wants to trade off those minutes for me. You know, obviously he's a first-line all-star. I don't think that's a very good trade-off for his team. But, um, you know, obviously it just kind of all my fights, you know, like I said from the beginning, are, are just kind of heat of the moment, fortunately. And Tommy Cross is a good friend of mine, and it just kind of came a, off a hit against uh, their captain. And, you know, obviously I got up and realized, you know, he's going to do what he has to do. And, um you know, we can laugh about it after, and, and I respect that about him. And obviously, Jamie Devane, really, really tough customer, yeah. and, you know, probably one of the tougher guys in the league, and we just kind of had a net front battle, and it kind of extended into kind of a little bit of a stick battle, and, and um, you know, fortunately, it probably went as best as I could. I threw one and, and missed, and, you know, we both kind of fell at the same time, and, um, you know, that's probably, I'll chalk that one up as a, as a win for me just because I got out of it with all, all my teeth and no cuts. So, um, yeah, again, I think, you know, I just, uh, take pride in being hard to play against and, and, uh, fortunately I don't have to go to pregame now thinking about fighting a guy like that. And, and of course, I'm assuming this is the answer, the same answer to any, uh, hockey player I would ask this has to be the weirdest end to a season you've ever experienced. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, you know, at the time, you, you try and justify it. Okay, we'll give up, you know, a dozen games now so we can get a normal season the next year. And, and obviously just dragging it on now, it's, it's um, you know, where we stand currently today. There's not a, a real level of optimism or a light at the end of the tunnel, which has been the, the challenging part mentally. But, um, you know, I, 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 as hockey players, you know, we get to do what we love. And, and um, 
I think if anything, it's kind of given us a yeah. uh, renewed sense of um, passion for the game. When you realize something's taken away that you know that, that you love so much, you never want to take it for granted again. And and in the grand scheme of things, if we miss hockey for a few months and you know people are out of work and people are are ill and, and even worse, then um, you know hockey's pretty small on the totem pole. But uh, you know, obviously, we're all hopeful that we'll have a chance to play again soon, and and uh, hopefully, we can you know all people can kind of get a sense of normalcy again here soon. Well, and one of the things that you and I were uh, discussing when we were texting and trying to figure out a date and a time to do this, uh, when you had thrown out today and I said, yeah, I'm furloughed and everything. And, you know, you said the usual thing, the normal response. I'm sorry to hear that. And, and the one thing I had said to you was, I feel like I'm getting all this time back with my family. Um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, obviously the routine for, Myself, since I was really 16, 15, 16, as I go to work I, and back then I go to school and uh, I've been furloughed since since May. So it's not a great scenario, but I wake up every day and I have more time with my wife, which she probably might say is too much time. But uh, I got you know, all this extra time with my family. So for me, you know, I kind of always try to look things uh, in a positive light. And uh, so I always try to look at that as a positive. But for you. Um, you had your second child, uh, I think you said eight months ago. So, uh, these are times that, uh, you definitely, for someone like you, obviously the situation sucks, the COVID situation, but on a personal level, this has got to be like a blessing for you in terms of being able to be there every day for your baby. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's a really unique situation because when he was born, it was, a. Uh... You know, normally in the, the heart of the hockey season, and he was born March 9th, and then basically March 12th, everything shut down. So the day we were actually leaving the hospital is when they basically said, hey, listen, no more visitors, no more, you know, even spouses at that time in, in the delivery units. And so I was fortunate at the time even to be a part of, uh, you know, that whole journey with my wife and um, and to get out of there, you know, before things got, got too crazy. But, you know, like you said, it, it, it will be time uh, – there's times now that it's, you know, it's crazy. We had to take a little break ago because he was losing his marbles. But, um, <laughs> but having said that, I know for a fact that, you know, 10 years from now or 20 years from now that I would do anything to have this time back. So I try and, you know, stay as present as possible. And obviously some days are easier than others, but like you, I'm trying to do my best. And I think as a whole, we're trying to do our best to, you know, to, to not take this time for granted either and, and appreciate the day-to-day moments. And yeah, there's days where I'm sure my wife is sick of me or the kids are <laughs> tired of seeing me around, but you know, it's nice to be able to be home for Halloween or, or even, you know, be home for Thanksgiving coming up or probably Christmas. And, um, you know, those are times I haven't really had with my wife or, or my kids for the you know, majority of my hockey career. And, um, so it is the, the silver lining of this whole journey so far. Well, and you have a beautiful family. You posted a picture on Halloween of your wife and your and your two kids. And uh, I, I, you know, I think the natural thing to say is, well, look out and maybe 16 years or so, we'll look for uh, little Cornell there on the ice. But that's a big boy you got there. We might see him for uh, you know in college football or something like that. Yeah, or at this rate, he might end up being a sumo wrestler the way he's going. <laughs> but uh, we just keep saying we hope he, he gets some height. We've got some height yeah. elsewhere in the family. I didn't get all of it, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> no, he's a big boy, and and uh, fortunately, he's got no problem uh, mm-hmm. eating and all that stuff. But uh, I'd love for him to play hockey. Even my daughter too. I always yeah. joke that you know if we could get those guys to you know play in, in school or something and save a couple bucks, that that would be the uh, the ultimate you know uh, plan down the line. But honestly. 
like we said before we hopped on here, as long as they're healthy and they're happy, whatever they choose to do, you know, I'm, I'm all, I'm all for, and, and uh, just for, again, really fortunate to have a young family that everybody's healthy. Now, I, I hate analytics, but I love the traditional stats, and I always try to throw in some numbers at the end of the interview, so you may or may not be aware of this, but you rank second in Railers history in three categories, in um, points, which maybe you're surprised at, but I'm not. Uh, you have 62 points in 120 games. You're second to Barry Almeida. Uh, also in assists, uh, you're second to Barry Almeida. You have 51, and he has 90. He seems like he's a hog, I guess. I don't know. Does he, <laughs> you know. So, uh, And also, uh, no surprise, uh, you're second in penalty minutes, and obviously Yannick is first. Um, he's a, his pace is a little, little better than yours, I guess. You have 332 PIMs in 120 games. And uh, for those of you who are a fan of Yannick, he's played five more games than uh, than Mike and has 527 penalty minutes. So <laughs> yeah, I figured he was up there. I figured uh, I figured I was definitely second in that, in that category. You know, the points and the offensive stuff is a is a nice uh, <laughs> nice surprise. And um, you know, Barry just wrapped up his pro career, but he was a guy that I played with since I was probably you know 12 or 13 years old. So for us to kind of play. Um, together and for me to be part of his last season was something that i'm i feel very fortunate you know to be a part of and um another really just good person and, and a really good player as well and um but yeah i don't think i'll be uh i don't think i'll be chasing down uh, turk anytime for that record <laughs> and i just realized how stupid i sound by calling barry a hog when he's second when he's all-time leader in assists so maybe i'm not as smart as i think i am because obviously yeah. he's not he's dishing them off he's not scoring them himself yeah, he might be up there in goals as well, though. So maybe uh, I can be, we can still call him a hug. <laughs> well, um, my I just want to say that uh, I don't know what your contract status is uh, for the upcoming season. I do hope that at least the uh, the organization Bridgeport, the Islanders, Worcester is at least on your radar for consideration. So I'll be keeping an eye on that. And uh, the final question I usually have for for all my guests. Is um is there anything I forgot? Because as much as I like to do the research and I really dive into it, uh, in case I missed anything, is there anything else that uh, the people should know about Mike Cornell? No, I, I think obviously you're so thorough and, and prepared for this, but I, honestly, I just uh, you know feel so thankful for for my career and, and what it's been so far, and and uh, for me to have the chance to play with the you know the teammates that I've had and um, and the coaches that I've had, you know, I could I could really write a book about you know my experience so far and and um you know i i always kind of as a kid appreciated the side of the game and to have a little small piece of it um you know i feel so fortunate to have done so and um obviously a big fan of your work and i appreciate you having me on tonight well mike i i am so grateful for you uh for letting me bring your journey to the listeners uh means a lot to me and hopefully one day we can hook up and uh, if we're allowed to shake hands and bro hug, we can do that too. But uh, I just want to say thanks for the time and have a great night. Awesome, Joe. I appreciate it. Thanks again. All right. Thanks, Mike. See ya. Bye. Thanks again to Mike for his time. I had a real good time doing that interview. It was so great to uh, go down the Mike Cornell rabbit hole and uh, find out all that information about his career. Uh, I just have this feeling about Mike that uh, whatever he does after hockey, and, and I think he alluded to the fact that he wanted to stay in the game in some way, shape, or form, probably you know, maybe with him coaching or scouting or something, but 
I don't know. I just get a, I just get a feeling that whatever this guy does, he's going to be successful. And um, obviously, I hope so. And, and there's enough, uh, there's enough pieces of the pie out there for everybody to uh, to be successful in what they do. And uh, I wish Mike nothing but the best. And uh, I hope you people enjoyed that interview. I know that I had an absolute blast doing it. Next week, I believe next week is going to be another seasons episode. So my plan is working so far where I'm I'm bringing you an interview in a seasons or well not necessarily a seasons but an interview episode and then a solo episode and I think next week is going to be a seasons episode. Now, I do have an idea to and I think I mentioned this an episode or so ago where I want to uh do a different kind of episode and um I have two people that I've already reached out to to help me with that and uh it's a, it'll be a little bit different a little bit similar but a little bit different to what you've heard so far and uh I think it's a great idea I mean I don't have too many of them but uh, every now and then it's uh I think they're okay so if I can get one of those done then I may bring in one of those next week but if not uh, I'm going to have a seasons episode. I already know who it's going to be. I already know the season, and I'm really looking forward to that. So if that isn't next week, it'll be one of the upcoming weeks. Uh, and uh, if that isn't next week, then that means I was able to hook up with one of these people that is going to uh, do one of these other episodes with me. So uh, anyway, uh, I hope that you all enjoyed this episode with Mike Cornell. And uh, until next week, everybody, be safe. <laughs>